Tonight's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by World Central Kitchen, their relief team working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support, takeout for children and families, deliveries for seniors who can't venture outside. They're serving tens of thousands of meals daily in NYC, Washington, Miami, Los Angeles, many other big cities. They've also formed hashtag Chefs for America, a coalition of restaurants and tech companies working together to provide meals to Americans that need assistance. And they're supporting local hospital workers, people, everyone who's on the front line working in wartime-like conditions, as well as local restaurants who've been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. How are they doing that? By launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines. Go to wck.org to learn about initiatives like Frontline Foods, Off Their Plate, Feed the Frontline in Los Angeles, which I donated to here, and East Bay Feed ER. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. I love what they're doing. Learn more at wck.org. Meanwhile, I know you're like me and always looking for news stories to discover, especially right now. Well, there's an entirely new way to watch. Quibi is a new premium streaming service designed for your phone with movie quality shows and episodes in 10 minutes or less. They've got new episodes every day of original shows like Elba vs. Block, Iron Sharpens Iron, and I promise download the Quibi app now to enjoy a free 90-day trial. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network, where we have not stopped putting up stuff, including the rewatchables. We did Tommy Boy put up uh, Thursday night last week. We have Total Recall and Enemy of the State coming this week. We're also going to be doing one more redraftables beyond the 2000 draft that we're about to do with Rosillo in the second half of this podcast. Doing 2001 with my old friend Zach Lowe. So both of those are going up on the Book of Basketball. And if you missed any of the ones we did last week, 96, 97, 98, 99, you can find all those on the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. Man, four weeks ago, uh, did not expect that that would be the last time we had a normal Sunday night podcast with Priscilla. I hope everybody is staying safe, listening to doctors, listening to uh, scientists and trying to stay away from people until we can get through this. Hope your family is safe. Let's bring in our friends from Pearl Jam. All right. Sunday night, Ryan Marcillo here. As always, only four weeks ago, we were arguing about LeBron versus Giannis and the MVP, and we had a whole rest of the basketball slate against us. And now this is just becoming the new normal. We had, I guess, the biggest thing that happened this weekend. The president, Donald Trump, talked to all of the commissioners except for the tennis commissioner because did you know there wasn't a tennis commissioner, Marcillo? I just found that out this weekend. I do now. Yeah. Seriously, that's good content for some of these shows. Should tennis have a commissioner, A Block? Feels like it. So the tennis was not represented, but somehow the WWE was. And Trump talked to all these commissioners about could we do some, ta- how, how can we get sports going by September? And this is something that has been a recurring theme the last couple of pods I've done. I think people slowly come into grips with the fact that sports might not be coming back 
until September. I want to do a czar sports thing. Like if we were appointed co sports czars, but before we do that, are you coming to grips with the fact that sports might be going away for a long time, including football? Like we might have the rest of 2020 here with no sports. I'm going to make, I'm not ready for that. Okay. I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, yeah. Like I think like a lot of people, you know, in the beginning of anything, uh, I can't really say anything like this because we don't have anything to compare it to, but in the beginning, it's, it's not something that I'd want to be right about in the prediction phase a few days in because you just you don't know. And I I think like a lot of people are probably realizing the magnitude and, and how much more serious this is. And uh, any any projections that we had even a couple of weeks ago seem ridiculous. I mean, even some of the stuff that was coming out charts and you know, I remember reading, oh, the mask doesn't really matter. And now everybody's being told you should wear a mask. Kids can't get it. Dogs can't get it. And then I saw something about a tiger getting it. So, you know, I don't know what to believe anymore, but I do know that with uncertainty <laughs> that leads to right. No, but I'm serious. Like it means with more uncertainty, it means less ability to come to some conclusion on this. So when we did the podcast, March 15th, I believe is when I had talked to somebody, you know, different league sources and then a league office person that was like, look, we're kind of just collectively shrugging our shoulders on this. And that was kind of 60 days out, which would have been May 15th. And then Woj had the piece almost immediately that night while we were taping saying 90 days, which is even further out. So there's no news that we've gotten that makes us think that this thing is going to get figured out sooner than later. I guess I'm just still trying to be a sliver of an optimist here in that maybe if things calm down, people go, well, wait a minute, maybe we don't have to just write off the rest of 2020, because I'm I'm not there yet, despite the increase in magnitude. Can I ask you how they figured out that the tiger had coronavirus? Like, was the tiger a little sluggish? Was, was the trainer worried? Like, like what's wrong with uh, Tommy, the tiger? What's going on I don't with know. him? Is he, he won't eat his meat today. I don't, we should get him tested. And are we really wasting a corona test on a tiger? I'm not a big fan of some of the social media when somebody goes, they got tested and it's like, oh, they got tested, you know, when I don't like the person's no, there's sometimes when somebody's getting tested and you're like, yeah, I can kind of understand why that person got tested ahead of other people getting tested. Uh, I can understand if you're listening, you have a family member that hasn't been able to get a test or didn't get a test right away. But yeah, if you want to go ahead and say, must be nice, the tiger can get a test. uh, I, I would probably be okay with that one. My, my son is lingering because WrestleMania is starting and, I told yes, him WrestleMania toughest kid in his class. I told him WrestleMania started at seven, and I think he just figured out that I would lied to him because I wanted to watch it to him after we did the pod. Uh, I <laughs> I uh, I'm pessimistic for sports because the more I think about it, what scenario is there where people are going to want to be in a crowd? I I brought this up the last couple of pods, but now I'm I'm doubling down unless there's a vaccine. And everybody's like, no, there's no vaccine for 15 to 18 months. Then, you know, we could flatten the curve. We could do the whole thing. Less people could have it. Like we could ease the burden on the hospitals, all that stuff. But eventually, if there's no vaccine and it's kind of lingering and then somebody get, and it, it's just going to keep going. So I don't, I don't see a scenario where I'm in a crowd, I guess is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay. Before we address the crowd part of it though, because- you are right. Like any part of this, there, there's no part of this where I read something. Like when Trump says, hey, after he praises his own ratings and makes a joke about dating models and then is like, okay, let's get to the pandemic, though. Now that I've got that out of the way, let's get to the pandemic. 
I don't care that he's like, yeah, no football, zing, you know, a little zing, a little boom, you know, start tackling people September 1st. I could be sitting around with a bunch of astronauts being like, hey, what do you guys think about Mars like in two years? It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. And that's not even being anti-Trump. That's just being pro-reality. And for him to come up with anything where I'm supposed to read some article where he sat with all the commissioners of sports and his Trump says football by September 1st, this guy wanted the country ready to go by Easter because it sounded right. So I just... And it, and it's this isn't even political. It's just simply, uh, wh- why am I putting any any thought into like, oh, okay, that's going to change my mind because it shouldn't change anybody's mind. Because you're right, it it isn't just about the crowd thing. It's about the medical. I, I don't want to just say medical field, but their capability to be able to handle any of this stuff. And then the scary thing, where you know none of us should have believed any number from China. I don't want to hear anything from China. Nothing, and. I also look at this as, you know, some of the stuff you could read where if the weather starts getting colder again, the start of football around that time, like, could we have this thing where it cycles back? Like, we think we're through it, and then all of a sudden, it it, it kind of comes back. So then what? But I'll def- I'm not deferring to you, but I'm following up on what you said. You can be anti-crowd, but don't you think that there's a lot of wins if people can find a way to just get these games on television with no one watching them live, no well, one so- watching them in the venue? So we're taping this Sunday afternoon. My son and I watched WrestleMania part one last night. There's no no fans. I I was kind of shocked how much I didn't like it. And you realize now this is wrestling. This isn't like a real sport, you know, real sport. Like it's not the NBA playoffs. You sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Reasonably sure. Um, <laughs> what you realize with wrestling, wrestling was kind of exposed because you realize how much of wrestling is entrances and fans reacting to entrance music. And like, here he is, Ryan Rosillo, and your music's playing. You come out, you walk down the runway, you go, you go into the ring, you stand on the top on the top of one of the ropes and you do your thing, you stick your chest out. Once that's removed, all you really have is people fake fighting. And and the best Part of part one yesterday, which was also terrible, was The Undertaker has this outdoor match that they filmed like a movie. So it was almost like a scene from Roadhouse. He's fighting AJ Styles. There are multiple cameras. They're doing a couple of stunts that maybe you wouldn't be able to do if it was a live thing. And it was actually pretty good. Um, So wrestling was exposed. My question is, if we're just watching NBA players with no crowd noise, I just think it's going to be too weird. I don't see a scenario where I'm like, this is awesome. I can't wait for game five. Like, I'll probably watch it because I'm bored. We're going to go. Probably. 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 You're yeah. 100% watching it. We're both watching all of it. We probably. both know this. I don't know. I thought I'd, I thought no I'd way. watch all of WrestleMania. And I made it nah. an hour and a half. Okay, look, I'm sorry because there was no guy with a sign that says Tim and an arrow pointing down in the background that your enjoyment of it was ruined. But to compare wrestling to any of this stuff that's real, do you honestly think like game five of the NBA finals with no one there after you've become accustomed to no one being in the crowd? finals is different. I'm talking about like if we're talking round two. Oh, no way. What else are you doing? What else are you doing? Tell me what you would do. I just think it's going to be weird. It will be weird, but here's... Kind I don't know if I'm going to like on. it. I'm just going to be thinking the whole time. This isn't, this doesn't feel right. I'll probably talk like, myself into it. Here, here's what I think would happen though, is that I've, I've been a long believer in this, that if you want to change something about yourself, you have to kind of like make it through those 28, 30 days, right? If you want to work out, 
you've got to find a way over the course of a month to go three or four days a week. And then after a month, it kind of feels routine. And then if you don't do it, something's missing. Um, if you want to work on a book like you have, like it sucks to get started and you think everything's terrible. But if you just do a little bit each day, it's the same way with studying. If you read, if you're like, I never read, we'll read for like a month straight, a musical, any of this stuff. So in the beginning, it is weird. The wrestling thing is one of your first experiences with no fans in it. So it should be weird. You should enjoy it less. But if we had weeks of NBA games, NFL games, baseball with no one there, I really think we'd accept it as this new normal where no one has to argue, is it actually better? Although first take would, would it be hilarious? Be like, is the NBA actually better with no fans? Uh, because it, of safety it, on the baseline? It, it, it definitely it be, won't be. So right. I, it won't be. I'm in agreement with you, but I, I honestly think everything should now be pointed towards what's the safest way to get this stuff back on TV because the players are going to lose money. I know everybody thinks I'm pro owners. I'm not, but they're worried about their money. Um, the television's part of this that's <laughs> connected owners. to, right, pro owner, Ryan, pro owner, Rosillo. Uh, the people that, whether it's the ad revenue that ESPN has to make good back, you know, like those make goods on stuff. And then just the amount of things that could be connected to try to salvage some revenue stream for not just owners and players, but a bunch of things around it, the advertisements that are being sold, all this stuff, like people that'll lose their jobs and sales because that stuff is not coming in. I'd have to think only if it's safe because the counter is, no, you can't do that. And how many people can be working on a truck and all these different things? I'd have to think that there's some sort of neutral location where they could get some of these games back on and the ratings would probably do well enough despite the fact that people be annoyed they're, you know, France, like fans. Uh, that's what I would be working on and thinking about the entire time right now. Can I tell you what I would do that would actually get me excited to watch it? I, I think the part I can't get around is how depressing it would be to watch these guys playing in a completely empty arena. I think the move, so like it's a CGI. No, if the, Avatar. Cel if the Celtics were playing the Bucks in an empty arena, obviously I'd watch it. I, I know I'm being dramatic. He, if they're playing each other at like Equinox and it's like, hey man, did you hear about the run yesterday? <laughs> the Celtics played the Bucks. <laughs> we're like, in here in Equinox? Like, yeah, yeah. They were, they were just running. They just decided to play to 100. So maybe the key, if we're going to do this, you know, without fans, maybe you change the venues too. Like maybe the Lakers play at Pepperdine. Pepperdine's like a thousand seats. It's just a little more intimate. Maybe you even go a little less. Maybe you just play in high school gyms, you know, maybe you pick like, I don't know, some, some 500 seat high school gym and do it that way. So it's like contained and the noise will feel differently and it'll just kind of feel more fun. Maybe use different uniforms. Maybe you just go <laughs> shirts and skins. I don't, I don't know. I, I just think it, if it's going to be different, like it should really be different. It just shouldn't be like, all right, here are the Lakers versus the Clippers in an empty Staples Center. This won't be weird at all. Like, like get, uh, I don't know, get inventive with it. All right. But so but, you're but on like, that call. Right, so I, I saw an agent the other day saying, you know, if I'm a player, do I have a right to to not have to play, right? Could I point to the scare, the threat of the coronavirus? That number is going to be so minimal compared to the amount of guys that don't want to lose 25% of their regular season paycheck and then all of the playoff money on top of that, everything else. Like if you think of the 450 players, and obviously it's a bigger number than that. I mean, hell, in football, we had over 2,000 guys eligible to vote on the new CBA. What percentage do you think wants to get back to work, especially in football? 
to make sure they don't miss that paycheck. So as weird as it is, and I think your venue change thing is is fine if it's safer, even better solution. But really, the only thing that should be mattering is we don't care how it looks. We just want it on TV because it salvages something here. And if I'm a player, that's what I'd be worried about. So what's your purpose to keep going with no fans and like this kind of MacGyver? TV revenue. TV that's revenue. It. So you're just, yeah. this is just money. That's it. Yeah. Why? Why? Like, I'm going to say the thing now on the podcast that everybody else is afraid to say openly because no owner wants to come out and say like, "Hey, we're trying to salvage this money." But if I'm a player, why do I want to lose money? Why? Why do I want to? That is again, and I'm going to say this probably for the last time because it should just be accepted. That is again, if, if there's enough medical people that can say, "Well, this is actually doable," and this doesn't put everybody in a really dangerous situation. Um, if you were of the belief that no one should ever be talking to anybody. You know, and everybody should be isolated. Um, you know, I don't. I'm not going to be able to counter an argument with you. The counter would be they start doing this, and like four days in, it turns out somebody has the coronavirus because, you know, some 22 year old he's out the night before, and he's like, ah, fuck it. My two friends came over, and then that friend had just, you know, been somewhere, and all of a sudden somebody has it, and now you have to stop the tournament again, and you have a go bear situation. That'd be one thing. So. Well, you're right. I mean, everything that I'm presenting here is theoretically where the country feels better off 60 to 90 days from now that, okay, you know what, this this could be something that could happen. Um, I don't think I'm this sure thing's going to – I'm just watching the behavior of even like, uh, you know, I think some neighborhoods have embraced this more than other, but if you read Absolutely. the news – if you read the news, there's a lot of parts of the country where they're like, fuck social distancing. Don't tell me what to do. And it's just, I don't think this thing's going to go away. The way it is, it's like if if you if you have it and you're in the vicinity of somebody else, you're going to give it to them. And either they're asymptomatic or they're going to actually get it. And they might carry it, not even know it, and give it to somebody else. And I, I'm just really pessimistic about, uh, you know, wait, with, with no vaccine. How does life go back to normal? I think football will be the one because nobody's greedier than the NFL guys. They're going to figure this out. They're going to figure out a way to do it, and they're just going to do it. And their attitude will be like, look, we're, we're plowing ahead, even if this is like a 12-game season, whatever. But if you were on that call last night, me and you are the co-zars of football. Trump, I mean, uh, co-zars of sports. And Trump's like, hey, I got all the commissioners on. Do you guys have a plan? Um, I think the first thing in my plan would be like, we got to have a drop dead day for baseball. It can't be, we can't just kind of drag along and play this by air. It's got to be like, if we don't start by this date, there's going to be no baseball. Like what is the sketch? What is the schedule for a season look like? What does the playoffs look like? It probably is like a 70 game season, right? Maybe more teams make the playoffs. You have shorter series, but Whatever version of it, it's lasting for about three and a half months. And there's got to be a drop dead date for that because you don't want these guys playing, even if they came back, they're not going to be playing baseball in like mid November. It's ludicrous. So my first thing would be what is yeah, our drop dead date stuff. to start baseball? So what is it? July 1st. July 1st, spring training or starting the actual season? You know what? I would. I just think spring training is a little different. I mean, the problem is, is pitchers. You'd have to trust that 
I do think, you know, one of the things that has been better about sports is that because of Instagram and because of everybody bragging about their workouts and all that stuff, even though some guys are totally full of shit. And just a side note too, draft prospects pushing a car on wheels. I don't know why we still think this is impressive in 2020. It's not that fucking hard to push a car on a road if it's flat. And then somebody the other day was like, this guy's doing it with a car that has brake lights. Do you guys realize that you can tap the brake and the brake lights go on, but the brakes are not engaged? And we actually were like social media believed that an offensive lineman was pushing a truck where the guy had pressed the brakes all the way down. All right. All right. That that rant's over. So. You have pitchers who'd have to make sure their arms are built up the right way. I think you trust that most of them did that. I think guys are so tuned in now to prepping their arms, getting them stronger. How long would they costing, do it though? Like if you're making, well, you just do it. You go outside and you throw a baseball, and then you start doing it further and further. But then what you if do you live bullpens, and then you do you know? I know, but throws. what if what if you're on the Mets and you have an apartment in New York City and you're staying at your folks' house and you don't have like somebody to throw to, and you can't go anywhere. How do you how do you like work on your arm strength? So is, is you, your thing because I don't I don't know that we're gonna be yeah we're not gonna be good Kozars then because you don't want anything to start. <laughs> no, it's not that I don't want anything to start. I'd want to really try to figure out how many weeks would it take for these guys to be ready. Like I feel like they should be doing all this stuff now, talking to all different trainers and players and like, hey, if we just said it's go time, how many weeks would you really need? Figure that out. So is that 17 days? Is that 20 days? Is that 10 days? What is that? And then the second piece would be, all right, then what's our schedule? Are we doing 70? Are we doing 80? Are we going to do double headers? Should we do seven inning games? Should we try to do two games in one day to kind of move the schedule along? Uh, what's our plan there? And then what's the playoff plan? And how long is that? How many teams make it? Are we doing best of three? I feel like they should be talking about this stuff now, and I haven't heard anything. because. June is now two months away, less. You know? Right, but why would I say on April 5th, July 1st is our drop dead date for baseball? And I don't know how anybody would say that. Why does NFL have to talk about week one being in jeopardy right now? We don't know. I mean, do you honestly think you know what this... You could be as negative as possible. And let, let me say I'll be as negative as you are. I still... Why, why would I start making decisions in the beginning of April about what's happening September 1st, especially if I'm football, knowing that I don't have any like arena stadium uh, crossover issues? Like, I don't have to worry about it the way the NBA does. Yeah. Baseball and basketball are in the clock. No, my, my question is, and I'm sure they're having these discussions. I would just love to know more about them. Like, I, I would, think baseball should just start. You know, like, I know that sounds, hey, the pitchers aren't going to be ready. Well, that's on you. That's on you to find a way to get as ready as you can through this whole thing. Like, what are you supposed to do? Just sit around and not do anything? Right. You'd be playing right now anyway. So, you know, we know there'll be guys that don't take it seriously. I think more athletes take it more seriously today. And instead of trying to do, let's do two weeks of spring training, if they can even get this thing going again. But for every league, it's about salvaging any way to put anything on. That's why, like, the horse thing comes out where the NBA is like, yeah, we might start having these horse competitions. You know what I'm up to right now? Go for it. Like the, my first thought isn't let me tear apart your horse proposition. My first thought is get as creative as you want putting anything on television. Yeah, I I wasn't a hundred percent against the horse thing. That I was a huge advocate of it. I used to write columns about it, and then they did it in '09 and 2010, and it just didn't work. And it's so funny, like what you have in your in your head for what would be fun about horse isn't how it actually plays out when the guys are getting competitive. They end up just shooting like 
20 footers or 28 footers or whatever. And they're not like doing the Pete Maravich, like sitting on the, sitting on the floor bank shots and stuff like that. They just don't play it that way. So I don't know how you would make it more, more creative. I'm positive. I don't want Dwayne Wade involved though. That's the only thing I know for sure. Dwayne, you retired. Like hang it up, Dwayne. It's it's Does over. Does this mean he you retired retire four again, times? Though. No, you we've we've had four ceremonies for you. It's over. Just retire. It's fine. You're like the guy at the club who's fifty who who's hanging out with the twenty year olds. Like it's done. Hey, take it easy for for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just these guys. They when you're done, you're done. You should you know. Part of part of retiring is being graceful about it and turning it over to the young guys. And now it's their league. It's not your league anymore. You retired. You know what I it reminds me of is I have a decent sneaker collection and some of it was sent to me over the years. Some of it was boredom. Um and I went, you know what? Probably what are we doing here? And then I had a pair of the off whites that were really popular. And then they were the the Jordan ones, the the blue ones, and I saw a coworker wearing them, and I went, "I'm selling those this week." <laughs> and that's kind of what I think of when it comes to the horse competition. I don't know what the NBA is going to do, but I have the most confidence in the brain trust and the owners and silver and people like that out of all the leagues. How would you rank your confidence in MLB versus NBA versus uh, NFL? for just just the IQ power in the room to actually like come to the right decision on some of this stuff. Because for some reason, and I don't know whether it's because I love the NBA the most, but for some reason, I trust that group the most. And maybe I should trust the NFL the most because those guys are ruthless and they'll probably figure out the most ruthless way to do this. But I feel like the NBA will actually like put real thought into all the variables to this. I'm ML- glad you said that though. I'm glad, I'm glad you said it that way because... Um, the initial reaction is, well, the NBA's probably the most adaptable. I think they're the most open-minded of any of the leagues. I don't even think that's debatable. But if we're talking strictly who will get product on the television sets, the NFL is such a heavy favorite in this that it, like Vegas has taken it off the board. Well, and the and, other piece is they'll just tell their players what to do. The NBA, the players will have you know, a relationship to the decision. I think yeah, ultimately it'll be a whole league thing where they all decide to do it. I do think you're underestimating, though, 2,000-plus players that have a shorter window in the NFL going, I don't want to lose any of these paychecks. Where the NBA, I don't think any of these guys really want to lose their paychecks, you know, but the, the number of NFL players that will say, hey, even though there's a little gray area, a little uncertainty, if things are, you know, things are coming around, we feel better about this, but there's still a level of danger, I don't care. I'm risking concussions out there. Like, get me out there because I may have three or four years of earning power. And I'm talking about a lot of the marginal players and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, and knowing that, you know, they've raised, well, they'll raise minimums for the new CBA. So we're Kozars. Trump says, Ryan, what do you think? What do you tell him? Just in general. It's like, Ryan, what do you think? <laughs> I feel like I'm surprised that you're doing anything to help the NFL because I thought you were still mad about not getting a franchise. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. I thought about that. It'd be great. He's like, NBA, go. NFL, yeah. <laughs> Not good. Sad. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 my pitch would be, like I already said, I, I've already done it. It would just be, 
getting things on TV, it's not just about owners. It's not just about players. It would take care of a lot of other things if there's some kind of product. Can we get to a level that's safe enough where we feel good? And if that means a bunch of teams quarantined in one city and running multiple games, um, you know, and I think after a while we'll get used to it. I think, I think it's weird as hell the first time you're watching an NBA game or an NFL game with no one in the stands. But I think after a little while you go, this is better than not having it. No, I watched three old playoff games today. Hey, let's talk about the return of the FX original comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. The Hollywood Reporter called the series' first season, quote, ridiculously funny and warned that, quote, you'll die laughing. Well, this season, Shadows continues to follow our four favorite vampires who have been living together for hundreds of years. I have multiple people in my life who love this show. What We Do in the Shadows premieres Wednesday, April 15th on FX, streaming next day, FX on Hulu, and if you missed season one, catch up now on FX on Hulu. I'd like to give you my top five most bored things I did during quarantine so far. Okay. Number one, I signed my wife up for Survivor. Now, I don't know if she's going to get picked. What? For real? Yeah, I, I, like- I, I legitimately filled out a whole application. I took a video of her talking about how if she was on Survivor, um, she'd probably win some challenges, but not eating a lot and eating infrequently like would make her pretty hostile to other people. So she'd be a great, great character, but ultimately they would they would kick her out. So I have her talk about that in the video, but she does didn't realize I was filling up application for. Her. I did everything else, and then I just sent it in. So you sent it in for real? I really oh, did send it. In. I sent it in for real. With with all of her info and everything, is signing your wife up for <laughs> is signing your wife up for Survivor in twenty twenty the two thousand nineteen Peloton gift? <laughs> if I be, I it's been my dream to see her on that show for twenty years because she really would be good during the challenges. She's a great she athlete. The problem is, you know, the whole thing of just like, oh, let's eat rice again. I she would lose it. And if somebody like fuck with the rice or ate half the rice and didn't tell the other people, it would she'd be like Swayze at the end of Roadhouse, just like cleaning out the tribe. So uh that was number one. Number two, I watched seasons two through five of Melrose Place. It was Why like Why did you skip one? Because I had already watched it <laughs> a million times. <laughs> no, and How do you I feel literally about it watched now? it pre-quarantine. I I watched it. It's on CBS All Access. <laughs> And uh, me, how do you feel about yourself now watching it? What are we talking like almost 30 years later, 27 years later? No, here's the thing. I like having TV shows on in the background when I'm doing other things when I'm doing emails when I'm writing Google Docs, whatever. I like to have either music or some TV show that I, that is kind of on, but I don't have to really, you know, monitor it. Like um, the third thing I did that this ties into it. I finally watched season one of Ozark which had been one of those things where I'm like, ah, someday I'm going to watch that. I'm kind of saving it like a nice bottle of wine. There'll be some moment where I'll be like, all right, it's time. What better moment than a quarantine? That one I'm watching it. I'm not doing other things when I'm watching Ozark. Melrose Place, it's just kind of on. And just things are happening. People are having car accidents. Kimberly's pulling her wig off. Allison, it turns out her father was molesting her. Sydney's a call girl. Then she's running the running the call girl service. It's all just kind of happening in the background for me. So that was number three. Now number, that show pushed the limits. It really did. It yeah. really did. Uh, number four, I watched um, a lot of the 1991 Bruins-Penguins 
series on YouTube. The Bees had a 2-0 lead. Huge 6-5 win in OT. Um, unbelievable Ray Bork that year. And then uh, and then in game three, Samuelson cheap-shotted Neely. The series flipped. But it's like peak, peak Lemieux. Um, it's peak Neely till he gets hurt. It's one of my favorite Bruins teams. And I was just enjoying all of it. So I devoured that. And then my fifth one is uh, I was driving the other day and NBA TV was showing, was, was the NBA radio station, Channel 86 on Sirius. They were running for whatever reason, game three of the 1995 finals between Orlando and Houston. They're running the radio broadcast of it at the time. And I got in the car and there was like nine minutes left. And I got to where I was going and there was like three minutes left. And I just sat in the car and listened to the end of it because I couldn't remember what happened. And what happened is they're up one at the end and, and Big Shot Rob makes the backbreaking three to win it. And they go up three nothing in the series. But Clyde Drexler's good. The announcers are into it. And it just felt like basketball. I was really excited to have it back. The crowd's going nuts. They're coming in out of commercial. They're talking about who should foul who. I was like, this is great. This should just be on all the time. So those are those are my top five most bored things I've done. How about you? Can I just ask you a follow-up there? Yeah. Other than the survivor thing, how different are those four from the things you would do non-quarantine? <laughs> uh, I think YouTube deep dives have, have taken on a new level of desperation <laughs> where you're just like, hey, what happened in the 1982 NCAA tournament before the Georgetown-North Carolina game? And you're just going in. Um that that and then uh just the the amount of TV I'm watching is just staggering. It's really honestly Do you like Ozark, by the way? Oh yeah. You're a Bateman guy, so that was a layup. For great me. Bateman. It's great Bateman. Great yeah. Laura Linney. Um I like ones where I like I like shows where the husband realizes the wife's cheating on him, but but kind of holds it for the for the information. And it's just kind of lingering for a few episodes. He knows, but she doesn't know. Or a few, in this case, one episode. But I just liked everything, how they dealt with that. Then it kind of circles back later. Ozark's good. It's a really good uh, start. I mean, when you're starting a series and you're doing the pilot and all of a sudden the husband's watching a video of his wife having sex with somebody else. Like, that's uh, that's a wakey up moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing really tops billions where, you know, Giamatti's being urinated on. You're like, okay, right. what do we got here? Here we go. You know? <laughs> okay, we're, we're getting right into this. Um, I did, Ozark could, I'm 12 in Ozark, so I got 18 left. I so I'll, yeah, be, I'll be caught up by next podcast for, for us. Ozark uh, continues the tradition of it's impossible to write a likable teenage daughter, right? Yeah. Isn't it? It's just in pots. Like, no one's ever able to kind of, if the teenage daughter is a, a B or C character, it, they always come out unlikable. Although I do like um, Charlotte. Charlotte will grow on you. No spoiler there. And Jacob, who is the local running the heroin farm, who speaks in a dialect that's different than others. He was one of the soldiers in Braveheart who didn't really feel like fighting. And also the drug dealer in train spotting, which kind of blows you away when you realize it. It's one of those shows you get you, especially when you watch too many of them in a row, which I did. I probably watched 12 and 24 hours where you start thinking, I could run a strip joint. This could, this couldn't be that hard. Right. I, I, I would have improved. I would improve the girls that were dancing. Like that was, 
he he's crediting uh, Jason Bateman's crediting the new manager like good job upgrading the town. It's like well that was a no brainer. Would have done that. Um, maybe would have made it a lot safer. Maybe the VIP room really laid the smackdown and nobody has sex in there. But um, you just think of like these alternate universes where you're like, could I have run a strip joint? I think I could have. Could I have started a small casino on on the river? Like, I feel like I could have figured that out. But you, the Ozark made me think of these things. I think you'd be, I trust you to run a strip joint. Thanks. I would. You know, I, I don't think I trust House. I'm sure now House would there, get involved with the help. There's there's other people who would have fly. What would you call it? The BS review? <laughs> I call it the ringer. Like, get some no, just ringers. <laughs> ringers. What ringers if you went to Spotify? A- <laughs> yeah. Ringers is perfect. We don't even need to talk about it anymore. Well, in Melrose Place, the bar that somehow Jake buys with fifty thousand, which I'm still trying to figure out the math on that, but commercial uh, loan. Shooters. Okay. It's called Shooters. It's like, we're going to head out and out of Shooters. I always thought that was a good name, but Ringers, I think, would be, oh, man, what happened to you last night? Ugh, rough night. Ended up at Ringers. Stayed till three in the morning. Just got cleaned out. I lost my credit card. Yeah, I think that could work. Yeah. What? Uh, it would suck. It would suck having to go to Ringers to get your debit card the next day. <laughs> there, was, there was the sketchiest, weirdest strip club and exit up from ESPN. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So it was known. And I went one time, long, long time ago. And some some people from work went. And one of the girls that we were with, it was pretty funny. Because she called me the next day and goes, I can't believe it. You know, she she got a little wild. And she was like, you know, I had a wild night. And I was like, yeah, no, no problem, no problem, no problem. She's like, is there any way you can bring me to the place? Because I left my car there and my debit card. And I have to go in during the day Ooh. to go get it. And I was like, as long as I don't have to go in, I'll give you a ride. Yeah. Yeah, there should be a phrase for that. Can you give me uh, your top five most bored moments you had during the quarantine? I started a book. Oh. It's called The Better Book of Basketball. Nice. And <laughs> I expected you to laugh more. The look you gave me thinks... Like you thought that was a dig. Now it's called um, letters to my younger self. So I'm taking that entire concept and it's just going to be 30 chapters. Great. Can I write the forward? Hoping, yeah. I'm actually looking for people to write the chapters and then I'm just going to publish. It. Oh, you're doing the Richard Deitch. You're getting other people to write it for you. Wait a minute. Uh, I built a squat rack. I'm close to building a squat rack in my living room. So I moved all the furniture around. Um, there's no kids running around, obviously no wife. So I don't have to worry about that. Um, so we're just going to go for it because if this is going for a few months, I got to I got to adapt. Set so number I've two. Been, I've tried to order as much stuff as I can. I have gone back and watched a bunch of games today. I watched Game Seven of the 2013 NBA Finals Heat Spurs. I want to talk to you about that. Keep keep going. I want to circle back to the 2013 Finals because okay. I also watched a lot of that. Other members of the media, those that I'm close with. We're having kind of these side text thread debates about, is it really great content if you just post everybody else's videos on Twitter? There's a few people that have built up quite a following that way, and it seems like they're universally praised. As somebody who strives to be creative and likes to acknowledge people's creativity, I think people that just post everybody else's videos for retweets and follows, that it's actually not that creative. So that's something we'd be debating and and probably wouldn't care that much about if we didn't have this much free time. And... uh, (laughs) I don't know. Let's see. Let me see here. That's a good Last. one. I'm upset that I wasn't on one of those text threads. 
we can add you to it. I, I just don't, I don't understand what happens when you see somebody else's great video and then you just save it and then you put your own caption, sometimes the same caption word for word and you hit send and then you're psyched. Um, but again, if everybody just retweets it and you get a ton of followers, then you're, you're kind of doing what you're supposed to be doing. But I just, I don't know. I think it's lame. I think it's I've, really fucking lame. I've tried to do less Twitter than ever. That's good. You're not missing a ton. Twitter's pretty dark right now. Yeah. It's it's about as 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 bleak as it's been. Cause especially because more people have more time kind of flooding. Yeah, you're right. No, you're right. I mean, Twitter, the great thing about Twitter is that it does kind of eventually let everybody know who you really are. If you're on it long enough, I gotta go, oh, that's what this person's deal is. And it, it sometimes it it ends up telling us way more about that person than we want to realize. But anyway, uh last that, thing is I've been I've been debating hobby stuff. Got a lot of stuff in the shopping carts. Haven't hit checkout on any of it yet. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's an instrument. I don't know what. You know, smaller, smaller space over here, especially since we're opening a gym. So I don't, I'm not going to have a ton of rehearsal area. So I, I don't know. So part five is debating what the hobby is going to be. That's likely a purchase and something I never even look at 60 days from now. So we were talking before we went on about there should be an advanced metric. Maybe they could figure this out at the next Sloan conference. How different your life is during a quarantine based on what it was like pre-quarantine. And if it's only like 20, it, it maybe if like the cutoff is like 40%, if it's less than 40% different than it was when we didn't have a quarantine, it's time to reevaluate things <laughs> where you're like, <laughs> We were like, I was already alone all the time and never outside and and watching a ton of TV. And the only real things that are changing for me is like that one night a week, I'm not drunk with my buddies or I'm not like, uh, it's harder to grocery shop than by the whatever the John Hollinger metric of that. It's time to reevaluate things and add a couple of hobbies. So I like a I, QER? Yeah, QER. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where if you're in a quarantine and you're like, my life's not that different, your QER is either too high or too low. I don't know what. Cause like Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that would mean. Yeah, right. What is a is a low QER good? Is it the inverse? This feels directed at me because whatever the QER no. formula is, mine's not that different. I've said it the entire time. I mean, other than the gym, other than that night that I get every few weeks. Out. No, you're out. You're playing hoops, you're doing stuff, you're coming to the office. I was thinking more of my dad. Cause my dad's like, this is terrible. It's just home. I'm like, you, you're home anyway. Like, <laughs> like what's really changed? You're not going to Celtic games. Yeah, you don't get to go to dinner to with your wife. Games. He, so he, he made the case. He's like, look, we went out to dinner a lot. We went to Celtic games and I really liked walking the dogs and talking to my neighbors. And those three things are now at the window. I'm like, all right, good case. I, I made him work for it though. I made him sweat it out. But yeah, the QER is QER. I feel like it's still in like 35. It's def definitely not 50. I've wondered if, you know, the positive in this, looking back and the people that will write books years removed from this, if they'll argue that everybody needed some kind of resetting. So instead of the mental fix yourself resetting, and whenever you go to a bookstore and you look at like the shelves, you go, how many possible help, self-help books can be written? Like, how can there be... 50 new self-help books this year. Like who's saying shit that hasn't been said already. And a lot of times too, we were great at giving other people advice and never being able to execute it on our own. But 
and this is all just theoretical, but will people argue that this time was this massive resetting that society needed so that we come out of this different, like come out of this a little more positive, a little more appreciative? Um, I think both those things will happen, but I thought that after 9-11 and it quickly faded away within a year. Absolutely. Like it was so cool to be patriotic there for a little while. And then it was kind of like, eh, all right, moving on. And yeah, we inherently become selfish again, but I wonder if there ends up being this resetting where anything is, is lasting. And that, that's kind of hard to, look, it's, it's nearly impossible to predict right now, but it is something that I, I think about a lot with this. I forget where we started on that. What was it with your dad? No, to follow up on that, I do think it's weirdly made people appreciate their friendships more. Like my wife is doing these Zoom calls with like six of her friends where they have a glass of wine and they shoot the shit. Before they used to do like, oh, we got to get lunch. And then it would be like every two months they would, their schedules would align, they'd go get lunch. Now it's like they're weirdly more 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 communicative with one another or or, or just like in each other's lives because they're bored. Um, I My dad's family, they do like a family Zoom call every week now, like all his brothers and sisters. And they weren't doing that before. So I, I do I do think, and we said this last week on the pod, that it has caused people to embrace some technologies that maybe they didn't fully understand would be assets for them. You know, like even like I look at The Ringer, we you always had to come over and do the podcast with me. Now we're doing it on Zoom. It's basically the same thing. You don't have to be here to do it. Um, we're able to cut these videos and you just kind of adapt and go. So I do think there's been a couple of positives out of that. Um, I think people appreciate toilet paper more. They definitely appreciate Perel and Clorox wipes, which you still can't fucking find anywhere. Um, I don't know how I got Clorox wipes. I, I got those oh, early. Congrats. Purell. I'll send you a, a tub of those wipes if you need them. Um, Purell, I'm out. Toilet paper was never a huge issue solo. Although I did read a fascinating piece on toilet paper where it completely changed my mind. It was like, oh, this is the psychological thing. They had these psychologists talking about just this mass shopping, hoard shopping, and all these different things. And this other guy's like, no, he's like, you guys are all wrong because you're not going to work. So you're not using toilet paper there. You're not going to restaurants. You're not using toilet paper there. Like all these different places that you would normally use toilet paper, you're now not using them. So your usage at home is jumped higher usage rate. Yeah. So exactly. So it's not that people are buying it. Yes. Are some people hoarding it and buying it unnecessarily, but there's a reason there's a real mathematical reason that people are buying more toilet paper because they're using far more of it at home than they ever were before. Cause no one's leaving their house. I Poop. thought that was like, Oh yeah, that should have been easier to figure out. Poopage rate. Um, all right. I want to talk about the 2013 finals and then we're going to do the 2000 draft, but uh, let's take one break. Hey, we're all stuck inside right now trying to keep ourselves entertained, adjust to the new normal while still needing to work out and find different ways to be healthy and stay calm no matter what Twitter says. When we're stressed or forced to switch up our routines and don't sleep well, guess what? Our immune systems weaken and become more prone to getting sick. And the best natural way to boost our immune system is through, yeah, great sleep. Right now, it could not be more important to have a product like the Whoop Fitness Tracker, Whoop is the best sleep monitor and fitness tracker out there, the gold standard for sleep tracking, proven to improve sleep performance by helping members build better habits like recommending when you should go to bed and how much sleep you need based on what happened that day. Whoop collects data about your body 24-7, gives you a better understanding about your well-being, along with personalized, actionable insights to optimize your performance. It accurately measures things like heart rate variability, 
resting heart rate, sleep, recovery, strain, even has a built-in strain coach feature that actually sets exertion goals so you can work out without losing out on your fitness goals through this self-quarantine. Sounds like a good one for my wife. Make the best out of this situation for my listeners. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Simmons at checkout. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter Simmons at checkout to save 15%, sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with Whoop. You and I have both been watching a lot of basketball. I was doing this anyway, just for the record. All the people who are like, oh, I watched the so-and-so finals games. Like, this was just what I just like doing this anyway. Uh, The 2013 finals, I had not dove back into in a while. And they had a bunch of them. Um, I think NBA TV, I can't remember what day they were, but it's been on. And then it was, there was another game that was on this weekend. And, um, the staggering amount of talent in that finals, which I didn't even really fully, fully realize at the time, because we didn't know Kawhi was going to turn into what, what happened with Kawhi. But you look at that finals now, there might've been eight hall of famers there, right? The four San Antonio guys and the four Miami guys. In crunch time, in game six, game seven, you might have had eight of 10 guys on the court as Hall of Famers. I don't think I fully realized that at the time. I knew, I remember I was doing TV that year and I remember game before game six, I did a whole thing that I thought Duncan was going to reach back and have this one awesome, great Duncan game because they're up 3-2. I thought... this He still has it in him, a little like Shaq in 2004 in game four against Detroit. He's going to really lay the smack down one last time and try to grab this title because he knows he doesn't want to go to game seven. And I think he had like 25 in the first half or some crazy thing like that. He wore down uh, in the second half. But Kawhi was awesome in game seven. Uh, Wade was really good in game seven. LeBron was great both games. Parker was immense down the stretch in game six, wasn't good in game seven. It, it was just so much fun to watch all those guys on the court. What stuck out with you with uh, Game 7? Two dramatic things. LeBron was really everything in that third quarter, and then every possession was him dictating it and still seeing, as much as we appreciate how gifted physically he still is, 35, uh, even though 35, it's it's not the normal 35-year-old athlete. It's a guy with all of those minutes, right? And he still has moments with these Lakers where you're like, I can't believe he's still doing this. But then whenever you force yourself to like jump back at five years, you go, oh, it's actually harder to watch the decline in normal progression as opposed to going back and being like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Now I see what's different here. Like I remember you talking about Westbrook in that Warriors series going, oh my God, like go back and look at Westbrook. Because I still have moments where I walk, watch Westbrook now and go, he's the best athlete I think I've ever seen in the game. And you're, you just have to go back and go, oh, that's right. That's what it's like when it looks like a guy is in his young 20s. And here LeBron was just five years ago, and it still is different. But every possession was him, and every time something good bottled up, then he would find somebody else. Battier started five of five from three. He's really you know b- beyond LeBron's dominance in this and dictating everything that was happening on offensive possessions in the second half. Battier, you argue, wins this game after a bad game six. The closing group was Chalmers. Battier, Bosch, a lot of lot of Chalmers right. in this finals, like a, like Chal- a shocking amount. Exactly, Ray Allen played less than twenty minutes, and he didn't score in Game Seven, and yeah. he's not on the court there towards the end. Um, I'll save the Bosch part for later, but Ginobili is a mess. He has three huge turnovers 
in the last six and a half minutes of this game and, and just blowing those possessions. One, the ball goes out of his hands, out of bounds. Another one, he just whips it out of bounds. And then on the last possession, after LeBron hits what's an elbow jumper that's basically for an NBA title. And that's something that's always bothered me, the way we look at clutch. And it's hard to keep track of all this stuff, okay? There's tons of things that I forgot from this game that I've watched probably twice before. But LeBron hitting that elbow jumper is about as clutch as you can be without the clock expiring because that's it, game seven, to win an NBA title. That's the shot, and it's never thought of. It really isn't, unless you're a Heat fan or like the biggest LeBron fan. And We just have a hard time ever giving credit to any of these things that aren't in the last possession when, to me, that shot's just as clutch as the shot, the, the clock expiring, in some ways maybe even harder in a way because you're like, well, hey, the, there's a play that's still open here. And in game six, so they're, they're about to lose the title heading into the fourth quarter. And he plays one of the best nine to 10 minute stretches of his career. Like he is absolutely every version of, you know, all the different pieces he had in him of, oh, he's a little bit of magic. Oh, there's a little bit of T-Mac in there. Oh, there's a little bit of Carl Malone in there. Oh, there's a little bit of Larry Bird. It's just like the full, the full package for nine, 10 minutes. And then, you know, he ends up missing the first three when they're down five. Four spurs are under the basket. The thing ricochets back so fast, none of them get the rebound. Wade tips it out, ends up coming back. LeBron makes the second three. But in general, him in those two games and him that season, I feel like that was peak LeBron. That was the 27-game winning streak. That was the the season when he was, it seemed like conceivable he might shoot 60% the first two months. Remember that? When it was like, could LeBron shoot 60% for a season? Uh, I just thought he was at the peak of his powers. That's right. I hadn't even thought of that. And game seven... You know, between that game seven and then the uh, 2016 game seven, the the game seven in Boston in 2016, there's some other ones. It's funny how he eradicated the whole LeBron is a choke artist thing that started for mostly silly reasons in uh, 08, 09, and 2010. And then, and then 11 was when it really kicked in in the finals, when... He kind of fell apart in the Dallas series. He did. And from that point on, was able to kind of flip the narrative on that. Yeah, the criticism of Dallas is totally justified. I mean, I just, I don't think you have to, you know, imagine going through life where you're handed a jersey and you're, it's like you're on the red team at nine and then you have to stay on the red team for the rest of your life. Like that's how we handle some of these opinions where you just go, hey, it's, it's fair to point out that LeBron was underwhelming against Dallas and Dallas did a really good job conceptually against him. And it went, it went further. It went further than that though, because he, he, they definitely kind of broke him in some ways in that series where, you know, even like being in the building, it was like his brain couldn't totally solve what they were doing. All the different ways they were, they were building the wall in the middle. So he couldn't drive. They were fucking with him when he was on defense. Um, and just, it, it was like their whole initiative, that whole series was, how do we knock LeBron mentally out of this and make him start second guessing himself? And he did. And I think- He did, it, yeah. He, I, I think it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to his career because from that finals on, he's a different guy. So when I look back at the game six ending, and I, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's just, because LeBron had had that turnover that was bad at 39 seconds on the Kawhi play, and then he yeah, had another the little alley later. Yeah, yeah, it's like he he was having these plays at the end. You go, oh my god! But just think, like Ginobili gets fouled 
at 28 seconds. He misses that first free throw, makes the second. They're up 94-89. They should have been up 90. They should have been up six with 28 seconds left in that game. Now, I know Spurs fans will look at it and say, well, you know, you win that one, you win the back. I don't know that. I think it's much like your Bulls theory, which you were the first one I've ever heard say it, is anybody that wants to give Michael eight straight just because it took those two years off is giving him credit for the two that he missed, but then not factoring in that you really think he's going to be able to keep up There's no way. for it that way. There's, yeah. I just don't think I, I would bet against it, even though I would never want to bet against MJ in anything. Um, I don't think the Spurs come back and win the next year because they constantly, as you know, this, their singular focus all year long, talking to people that are around them, like they didn't, they, that just shows the toughness of the entire organization and the makeup of those guys is that they were mad. I mean, they started game one the next year mad, feeling like Miami got their title, and they carried it out, and I thought smashed them in the finals there. But Manu misses that free throw in six, and then he had those three turnovers. And then after that LeBron elbow jumper, really to win it in game seven, they ran a play where Manu's going to go baseline and get it back to Duncan, and he turned it over there too. So watch it again today. You're like, man, like Manu just had a, I remember- a tough, tough stretch. The Spurs were shooting on the basket where our set was in in the fourth quarter, game six and seven. And I I think they're down two with like maybe 40 seconds left, something like that. Which year? In, in 2013. And, uh, and Duncan had a little bunny. He had like a little five-footer with Batty A on him. And a shot that he's made 10,000 times. And he like back-rimmed it. And it spun out. And then Miami had the ball. They had the momentum. And I remember Duncan going back and I think somebody called a timeout and Duncan just like slammed the floor and was like really just so pissed. But he he knew like that was the moment. Like I, that game was a lot closer. I'm glad you watched it because uh, I always felt like that game was a lot closer and a lot more exciting than people remember. Everyone remembers that series for the Ray Allen shot. Game seven is a really good game. It's really well played. And those teams, you know, the Spurs broke them the next, the next year. You go back and you look at... uh at the 14 finals, those last three games, they were up, the Spurs were up 20 plus. I think they won by like 19, 19 or more each game. Like they killed Miami in that series. They wiped them out. They sent them home and they ruined the LeBron dynasty. That was it. He left. So yeah, Miami lost game one of 14 by 15. They won game two by two. So they split in San Antonio. Then they come home to Miami and lose two straight by 19 by 21. And then game five is a 17 point loss. And what, San Antonio did. I think it was kind of an early three-point barrage preview of what we were going to start seeing. Yeah. It just felt like there were stretches those guys couldn't miss. And when I watched the game 7-13 thing like today, you know, Kawhi was not a major part of the offense. He was an afterthought. And it isn't wrong. Like, he still was somebody where you're going, I don't know what he's going to be. So you can't go back and be like, oh, you need to get the ball to Kawhi more. But he had these moments going, hey, there's a lot of times where no one can do anything with this guy. Offensive rebounds around the glass, always being in the right place, hitting a big three. He did back rim one. I think he had 16 boards in game seven. But if you, if you're watching what Miami was doing off uh, defensively, they were just completely leaving him alone. Like he's, they were packing in the middle, trying to double team people and whoever was defending Kawhi, Kawhi's just five feet by himself. You, you know, and I think by the next year he could shoot threes and you couldn't do that anymore. But that year you could. Yeah, that's so. that's right because it was kind of this. Wait a minute, Kawhi, this guy who's this really nice player, you'd love to have him on your team. Like, wait a minute, is he start draining threes? Like, what what's going on here? And he's still so young. But the other thing that happened in uh in thirteen was Parker was hurt, and in game even in he was always like, is he playing? I think he might have even sat out one of those final games. And in game six, he was the guy that Miami couldn't stop. That was why Chalmers 
um, had to play so much. They none of the other guys were going. Dwayne Wade wasn't going to defend Parker. Um, but in Game Seven, he sucked, and I, he sucked because he was hurt. In game in 2014, those guys were healthy. It was a different story. But the Parker, the Parker injury was the secret factor of that 2013 series. And this is also that 13 stretch for for Miami, where I know people have a hard time with my Bosch position, but I know he's going to make the Hall of Fame um, because it's it's the Basketball Hall of Fame. And you know, you look at the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers. He played 30 plus minutes in that series in the games four, five, six, and seven, he scored seven, seven, five, and nine. And then in this game seven, we're talking about now in the win against Spurs, he played 27, 28 minutes. He had zero points and he did a really good job um, with Duncan and Duncan made some tough shots on him because it's Tim Duncan, but you could see other times where Duncan would get frustrated by Bosch and the fact that Bosch could hang there defensively, all of those things are positive. Um, and I understand what that is with Bosch, but zero points in a game seven of the NBA finals. And no one ever says, I don't know. He just has a lot of games where he doesn't score at all in, in big playoff spots. And we can talk about Wade and LeBron and all those things and all oh, the shots weren't there for him. I mean, one of six, three of seven, one of eight, three of 13, Oh, five. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I think sometimes Bosch, because he was on that team and the team success, there's just, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I guess I'm just like Bosch to me is not a superstar. He was always, he was always one of those guys that um, I just fit, was overqualified for the spot he was in. Definitely. I'll and give you that. So I look back game seven against the Celtics in 2012 when he made, I think, the biggest shots in the fourth quarter. He made two or three like monster threes that enabled Miami to pull away. He was eight for 10 in that game. He made three threes. And I think two were in the last quarter, 19 and eight. But I thought he was awesome in that game. Like I thought, it's kind of a thankless role to be the third guy. It's not, they're never going to be like, oh man, we got to get Chris a touch. Let's get him in. Let's, let's get Chris more involved. Cause you're just not, you're not going to do that. Um, so he almost had to like be the Draymond of that team. And I, I always felt like he, he was, it was a little beneath him. And I think he was yeah. fine with it. But I, I do think before he had his uh, ailment where his career basically gets derailed, I think that would have been a really fun stretch for him once LeBron and those guys left. When like Houston was trying to get him, he ends up going back to Miami and it was going to be his team. I think he would have been back to being like a 25 and 11 guy again. And we just never yeah, I mean, got he put to see up, it. He put up big numbers um, at, you know, we know what the Toronto numbers are, but. Yeah, they were empty you know, as calories. I've, I've, so. Right. As I've said before, I mean, there's no playoff moment for Bosch in Toronto other than 39 in a loss in game four against the Magic in his second year in, the second year in the playoffs. But I also thought it was interesting because when I went back and looked at it, I go, wait a minute, Spolstra played him 27 minutes. Oh, that's right. It was fouls. He had five fouls. So he played only 27 minutes in that game. But yeah, he just didn't score. I mean, this is this is not, it's not even a knock on him. I just I just think sometimes Bosch, depends. If you're a Heat fan, you think he's a superstar. If you're not, maybe you forgot. And if you're me, you think there are moments where you forgot he was out there. And, you know, when we're talking superstar hall of fame, I just think that we should be a little bit more, uh, well, people were surprised. Critical is the right word or what, but people were surprised when we were both saying Antoine Jameson was going to be a hall of famer. And I wasn't saying it like he should be a hall of famer. I just think he's going to get in because 20,000 points is get you in the hall of fame. I think the standards are low. They are like, they yeah, are. That's, that's always my, like whenever anybody's like, Hey, do you think I don't even, I don't even need you to finish the sentence. Usually I'm just going to go. Yeah, probably. Rudy Tomjanovich made it. Did he deserve it? 
I, he's averaged 20 points for a few years. He was a good forward. He was never like a top 10 guy in the league. And then he coached two, uh, two Rockets title teams. So I, I guess the totality of that, but like at some point now does, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I just don't know what the line is anymore. I can't wait for you to get in. It's going to be unbelievable. Would I get of oh, the, the Kurt Gowdy thing? Yeah. I, I You're 50 now. I'm kind of surprised you haven't gotten it yet. It'll be after I'm dead. They'll be like, oh, we should give it to him. And he won't be here. Yeah, if you get really sick, they'll give it to you. And then if you die, you'll definitely get it. But they won't want you to get it now. Let's do it. The 2000 redraft. We're going to take a quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So... Let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. All right. So we've been redrafting. How about the fact that we didn't realize we should be calling this the redraftables? Took took a reader last week to, to send an email being like, hey, man, why aren't you calling these redraftables? Like, I don't know. So we've done 96, 97, 98, 99. Uh, one was on we your are feed. calling them that? Yeah, we're calling them redraftables now. It's just okay. better. I, I just thought when I, yeah, I don't know. I thought that that was what it was, but I guess. Better for the poster. That guy. Yeah. So uh, you can find all the old ones. If it, The easiest way to find them is on the Book of Basketball pod, or you can search for Solo's archive for one. You can, we did this one last week. We did 2000. The real reason we wanted to start this whole redraftables thing was just to do the 2000 draft. This is our favorite draft. It, it is. I wrote once that the best thing anyone ever said about this draft was, well, at least nobody ever killed someone from this draft. I, that might be the, the most praise you could go. Uh, the, the, the stats are incredible. Only five guys out of 58 potentially could have been like a real important starter on a playoff team. There were seven lottery whiffs. Stromile Swift was the number two pick. We had a Prisbilla dueling Moiso Thomas Alexander Cleves Collier run for six straight picks from nine to 15. We had the 17th through 23rd picks were better than picks two through 14. We had the poor Clippers who had three, 10, and 18, and it turned out to be the worst draft ever. So they're rebuilding thing. And there's more facts we'll get into, but this draft was bad in the moment. And there were a lot of reasons for it, uh, which we've talked about in other pods where the one and done and the high scores and all that, it was just depleting depleting the uh, possible draft assets. Sometimes with draft classes, you just have bad luck. Yeah, it, it ebbs and flows depending on the year. But we knew it that college season because it was a lousy college year. 
Can can you name the four best guys in the 2000 national championship title game? Um, is that Mateen Cleaves? Yeah, there's one. Uh, Mo Pete. Yeah. Do you remember who he played? Did they play Florida? Yeah. Mike Miller. Yeah. Andrew DeClerc. Udonis Haslam, 18 years Udonis old. Udonis Haslam. Ah, damn it. You were a big Teddy DuPay guy back then. I love Teddy DuPay. <laughs> Still holding out <laughs> hope. Keeping your fingers crossed. But that was you one know, where- They used him the right way. Cleves sprains his ankle in the second half and still ends up being the MVP of the final four. But it was the first bad college basketball tournament we'd ever had. It was up until through 99, it delivered the goods year after year. And that year, it was like, what's going on? It was like one of those summer movie seasons where there's just no good movies. You're like, what's going on? Where are the movies? So, um, But it was good for Izzo, though, by the way. It felt like Izzo needed something there. To, to then be, because I, I just think the world is Izzo, so I wanted, like, whenever you were getting into arguments about which college coaches you like, because it's, it's fascinating in the basketball world, like, how many people think some of the biggest name coaches at the biggest name programs that have had these unbelievable careers, they think they're absolutely terrible in-game coaches, right. where Izzo would be the guy that gets all that respect, and it just, Izzo's, the whole consumption of Izzo would have been dramatically different had he not pulled that one off, so. So this draft... The Nets had the first pick, Vancouver second, Clippers third, Chicago fourth. Our top four were Kenya Martin, Stromile Swift, Darius Miles, and Marcus Pfizer. Orlando, Atlanta, Chicago, Cleveland, and the next four, Mike Miller, DeMar Johnson, Chris Mim, Jamal Crawford. And then we finished it out with nine through 14, Houston, Orlando, Boston, Dallas, Orlando again, Detroit. Joel Prisbilla, Keon Dooling, Jerome Muiso, Etan Thomas, Courtney Alexander, Mateen Cleaves, Jason Coll- uh, Jason Collier went 15. Um, it was weird when it was happening. There was not a lot of excitement. There was enough uh, of a dearth of prospects that Darius Miles all of a sudden became super exciting. He was from St. Louis. There was some KG stuff with him where it's like, this could be another KG. But if you actually watch the clips of him in high school, there's no resemblance to KG at all. (laughs) He's basically a six foot 11 jump shooting small forward who can't shoot. But a good athlete, fun, carried himself a certain way. But I I don't know how the KG thing started. And and just a mess all the way around. When you look at, when you look at just the first round, what jumps out? I just need to clean up something here. I was thinking of Donnell Harvey. Florida. DeClerc is still on my mind because of the 96 draft that we did. So DeClerc had declared years earlier. So I just want to make sure I cleaned that up. Darius is big for me because he was supposed to be going to St. John's and St. John's was still pretty relevant. And, you know, our test had just been there. Uh, Eric Barkley's in this draft too. And Eric Barkley could, could score, but he, like a lot of guys, was just another big time scoring undersized guard that never gets a sniff of the NBA uh, after the first couple of years. So Miles was supposedly going, but you're right. Like I went back and watched the beginning of this draft on YouTube. It was a TNT broadcast, which I do want to bring up with you later. And after Kenyon Martin goes one, it's, we're still in this new world, which you wouldn't have thought of. Where they're like, man, five straight underclassmen and Darius Miles, you know, and you're just like, yeah, oh, that's right. It was still weird. 
and people would be complaining. Like a Dick Vitale would come on and be like, how come you're not taking Mateen Cleaves? Like I remember him losing his mind that Mateen Cleaves didn't go higher after he'd had this epic run because that's Vitale what he does. He just gets super mad that the older kids, he used to just do it ad nauseum. And you're just like, well, that's – and honestly, Mateen Cleaves – went higher than he should have, even in a bad draft, because it just people kind of kind of see Mateen Cleaves and go, yeah, I don't, I don't really think he's a good pro, even though this whole class was so bad. So that was kind of the thing that going back and watching the YouTube cuts of the draft picks and the analysis, where even though it's 2000, which, yes, it's 20 years ago, but it doesn't feel that long ago, it still felt like this uncharted world of, look at him taking all these underclassmen. So some facts... Kenyon Martin and Michael Redd, the only guys who earned more than $100 million in this draft. Only four cracked 50-win career shares. Turkaloo, uh, Mike Miller, Michael Redd, Jamal Crawford. Only five played 20,000 career minutes, which is like, normally that number is double figures. There were only three All-Stars from this draft. Michael Redd, Kenyon Martin, impossible. Jamal McGlure. And this is even better than only three All-Stars. Only 61 combined all-star minutes from this draft. <laughs> Everyone in this draft played 61 just- <laughs> minutes of the all-star game. Uh, That's just being dirty. That's like, wait a minute, only three. I mean, three all-star selections for an entire class ever. Not three guys were all-stars, three selections. And then our research department decided to be even meaner with that minute total. Is this Zach? No, I'm getting to him in a second. I oh, had okay. two more for, for me. 11 of the first 15 picks played less than 12,000 career minutes. 11 of the first 15. Uh, Six of the first 15 picks played fewer than 350 games. So now uh, Zach Cram from The Ringer, he had a couple extras here. We call these Zachs. Michael Redd, the only person who made an All-NBA team, he made All-NBA third team. Um, This is the only time in, in recent draft history, like in the modern era of the draft, where only one person from a draft made an All-NBA team. The players uh, that we mentioned now, only three All-Stars. The second lowest total from the lottery era for players from a draft making the All-Star team was 13. So it was, this was this. All was right, three. so say that again. So the, so the second lowest in the lottery era, so we're going back to 85 here. Yeah. Is 13 All-Stars. And 13, All-Star, 13 All-Star games. 13 All-Star games. 13 All-Star games. This one had three games. That three games. You total. don't even need to say anything else. It's the only draft ever in the latter era without multi all stars. There was not a single guy who made more than one all star team. And then uh, an average of 13.7 career win shares, the fewest for any draft in the latter era. So it's just a train wreck all the way through and through. Fortunately, there was a lot of comedy. We had uh, Reggie Theus interviewed Elgin Baylor and described him <laughs> after as, quote, a veteran of the lottery process. He said this with a straight face. Like this was a compliment, an asset. He's a veteran of the lottery process. You know what that means? You suck as a GM when you're a veteran of the lottery process. So that happened. That's uh, the nicest way to say you suck as a GM. That's yeah. amazing. Veteran. That's like when they call uh, like some local radio host, like veteran, veteran local so-and-so. It just means you've bounced around locally and worked at a bunch of different stations. So we had we had an all-stiff draft night trade of Joel Prisbilla for Jason Collier, future number one. That happened. 
we had a green room watch with somebody who didn't even end up being good, Jake Tescalitis, who I think you were in on a Sacalitis. little bit. Sacalitis. Yeah. He fell to 25 because people well, were worried some, about his contract. Yeah. yeah. They should have been worried about his talent. <laughs> we had uh, we had a, a surprising moment when the Clippers took Miles third. Nobody saw that coming. And he came out. It took him forever to come out. He had a cream-colored suit on, put a blue Clippers hat on it. And he did, he he legitimately hugged Stern in a way that in 2000 was not something we saw at the draft. So Rip Hamilton and Hug Stern the year before. This one was almost genitals to genitals. Now we see like <laughs> Goodell's hugging everybody. But normally you just shook hands, maybe a shoulder tap. Miles went in for like a real hug, like he was catching up with an uncle at Thanksgiving or something. So that made it first. And then after that, uh, Charles Barkley was doing this draft and he just went nuts on the Clippers. And this was right after he had retired. We were getting, oh, could Barkley be the next Madden for these drafts? Barkley said, I don't think the Clippers are a good environment for Miles. They're a terrible organization. I hope he gets out of there. The Clippers are one of the problems in sports. The perfect example of a team that lets all their good players go every year. They're giving their fans a bad product and just like went in on them. And it was like the first exciting draft announcing moment in the history of, of the draft where somebody actually was like going in. Um, we also had, oh, my favorite moment for my dad. It did the, I did the draft hour that year. Um, the Bulls took somebody named Dalibor Bagarich. Yeah. Number 24. At this point, we had the sporting news where they would put, they had like mock drafts at this point in the sporting news. And my dad looked down and he said, he's not on my list. And just seemed more confused than anything. Um, Dalibor Bogarich, just, it was like, where did this guy yeah, come from? He's a big from? German. So, uh, yeah, a lot of. Uh, three years of the Bulls. Three years. We're going to redraft. So each one, um, Ranking the guys from super duper stars of five, quality starter is a one, all star is a two star. This is the only draft we're probably ever going to do where there's no two star guys. I think. Would you would you rate? You don't Ken have one two star. Yeah, I think Kenny Martin. I would rate him as a quality starter. I wouldn't rate him as an all star. Would you? And you mean perennial all star? Just like all star. Was there an all star in this draft? I think the answer is no. Michael Red had a really nice stretch. He did. It we're, took him a while to get him. going, but I know once we get to him and that whole thing, because he was a second rounder, and I think if you look at the the cumulative stats, the analytics, um, you know, he he holds up well compared to all these other guys. So we can either do the redraft or whatever. But I, I would like to just before we do that, I, I want to ask you because you got to do the draft yeah. at ESPN, and yep. as I've said. It, 2000, you go back and you look at the production. It's TNT. I'd be saying the same stuff if it was ESPN because I don't really care. Um, we know Ernie's a glue guy, backbone, keeps the thing you know, going in the right direction. But you had John Thompson up there who didn't know anything about anybody. Hubie, who didn't know anything. And then they brought by Rick Majerus for like comic relief. And he actually, it's just fascinating that even in 2000, we would have the NBA draft on television and you wouldn't really have anybody that you knew was putting in the time and doing the scattering reports. And the NBA hadn't really had, I mean, this is even pre-chat Ford being on the radar. And now we have a bunch of different guys that are locked into kind of that draft thing. But I don't know what I want, though. Like, I go back and watch it. Like, Majerus 
said at one point, no, no, Hubie said this. Hubie said that that our test is better as a two guard, struggles as a small forward. And then he turned into one of those best small forwards in the league. Um, when they were talking about like rosters and how people <laughs> fit and people freaking out about Chris Mim not going to the Bulls because the Bulls needed size. And so what the guys were doing, because they weren't putting any time into it, you could just tell that they're like, all right, the Bulls don't have a center. They have Elton Brand. Oh, they got to take Chris Mim. And like Thompson would say, oh, I saw this kid play. And he'd be like, oh, wow, John Thompson saw him play in high school. And then would follow it up with like really no depth to it. So it was a bunch of people on the desk for this really important night that you and I probably take too seriously. And you go, that's amazing that you could have a TV product. And this isn't like it's 1978. It's yeah. in 2000. And nobody, they don't have anybody there that actually like put in real depth and real scouting reports. And I'm thinking, is that just because nobody thought and it wanted that. Did we just want big names? Because I remember even at ESPN, like we'd have Stephen A, you'd have Mark Jackson, you'd have Van Gundy. None of those guys were watching any of this stuff. They're not on Synergy or Second Spectrum breaking all this. Like I remember Stephen A, there was a pick. He goes, well, I've, he's like, I've never seen the brother play, but I hate this pick. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, so I don't know what I want, right? Like, what is it that I want? Because sometimes the stuff I want maybe a boring television product and you got to do it. And I'm sure there were times where you felt like, Hey, we're doing the wrong thing and we should be doing this. And the TV guy probably telling you you're wrong. Right. I, I feel like everybody has to have a role. I thought we did a good job with the draft, but we, everybody had a role. Like Billis was the college guy, which is sorely missing from the 2000 draft telecast. You just talked about, cause John Thompson's not going to say anything. And he, I don't even think he was in college anymore at that point, but Billis is the guy who, no, Escher could take it over by then. Go ahead. Billis was the guy who had seen all these guys play and then was crunching tape on them and doing the thing. So you, you could trust him. Jalen, I think at least the first year was still on the college show. So he was at least seeing these guys in person, had a feel for them, but could talk more about, um, you know, like what's it like, what you're like in college versus what you could blossom into. And then my thing was more trying to figure out what the teams were doing, you know, and that's stuff where you really need somebody out there who's like, oh, they're doing this because they're actually, they have these guys eligible for free agency and they've got a blah, blah, blah. And, and you just got to know all the moving chess pieces. And it, it, that's not something you can study. You have to either know it or you don't know it. Um, and that was something where even like when Van Gundy was on, Van Gundy's brain, like he doesn't, know what the cap situation and, and sh stupid shit like that. You kind of have to know that stuff on the fly because there's trades too. And if a trade happens, you have to go, all right, well, why'd they do that? Well, what, what's the purpose of this? And, and almost like react like we would on a podcast. So it, it's a night that has a lot of moving pieces. And if you have people that aren't totally versed on at least whatever their specialty is supposed to be, it's going to go really badly. But nobody yeah, cared. But nobody cared in 2000, though. This wasn't like a huge event back then. But I've seen ESPN lineups where, and I understand, like, I think TV executives, they err on the side of names where they go, let's put our biggest stars on these shows and we'll figure it out. But I really think if you're going to have a draft on and it's going to be five hours of this stuff, like the shtick and the zings, like, after a while, like, if you don't know anything about the players, um, I got to the point where I stopped watching on TV. I mean, I did it six years for radio. Yeah. And I said, the only way I'm doing it is an analyst. I'm not going to host it. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't even let me on the radio one for a bunch of years. And then after like the first year, they go, can you come back next year? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And then, you know, a couple of years I did 
did it with Scott after the fact, which is great. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Like here I was after the draft is done. I'm on Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt breaking the whole thing down. And it was uh, you know, because I worked pretty much nonstop on it. And um, I don't know. I, I just watching in 2000, I'm going, this was this was like considered good. And that would get destroyed if it happened now. If somebody said, Hey, let's just put a bunch of, you know, NBA cronies on and we'll wing it. I really like doing it. The shocking thing about it that I hated was how fast the picks came. Cause it was five minutes between picks. So the guy walks out, he shakes hands, then he has the interview with whoever, and that's like three and a half minutes. And Billis is doing his whole breakdown. That's a prepackaged thing. And then you basically have like a minute to react before the next pick, which isn't, you know, you're talking like lottery picks. Like when Cleveland took Anthony Bennett, that we could, we could have talked about that for 15 minutes, but it's like, all right, on to the next one. Who's number two. And it's like, Cleveland just took a guy who, if they didn't take him there, might've fallen out of the top 10. Like we should, we should be talking about this. So I wish it was 10. I personally think the lottery should be its own night and I would make it 14 picks. That's it. Uh, 15 minutes between picks or 12 minutes between picks. Let's really go into this and make it like a dramatic night and then do the rest of it later. But I, I, I think I'm the only one who would probably want that. I would like it, but we're wrong. We know we're wrong on this. Yeah, because they wanted to move right? and they want to get yeah. everything done in one night, all that stuff. But it should at least be for the lottery. It should be 10 minutes between picks or eight minutes or something. You should get more time. Because it's, you know, you've got so many different people on it. You'd have... Now that Woj is part of it, who really is the most important thing because he knows all the moving pieces of right. all this stuff. But when you don't have the news guy, you need a news guy. You need somebody who's seen them play. And then the other thing that's tough, and this is where Billis's role is really challenging, despite what an authority is on the college game in comparison to most of the people that he's sitting on the set with over the years when I've watched it on ESPN, is that it's really tough to go up there and, and just let me... I'll just pick Lori Markinen, right? You know, because I, I actually think Lori Markinen could be okay, set back a bit this year. But like, say Lori Markinen's taken seventh, and Billis goes, "This guy sucks, total stiff, fraud, can't can't dribble, can't shoot." You know, if that's you can't really do that, even though that would be the best. It would be awesome if somebody just decided, "Hey, that's who I'm going to be on one of these draft shows, NFL or NBA." You know, you don't have to say sucks necessarily. But everything is spun into a positive because there's this very delicate thing of like not wanting to ruin a kid's night. Well, that was a big thing for Jalen, especially because you could hear the people in the arena could hear us at least one of the years. Um, but Jalen was like, this is the best night of this kid's life. I'm not going to trash the pick. I'm just not going to do it. So, and I was in the spot where it was like, all right, there's going to be some bad picks and we're going to have to like dance around, you know, oh man, why'd they do that? But you can't, the guy's whole family's watching, so it's, it's definitely a delicate balance. True, true or false? Did you feel more comfortable trashing a Euro pick just because of the language barrier? No, I, I, I loved it. <laughs> I, I got to say, I was most fun I've had on TV were the two drafts. I really had a good time because I was such a fan of what was happening too. It was, it, it felt pretty natural to just be like sitting with two other guys that I hosted that they were doing just be like, Oh, what'd you think of that pick? Ah, well, here's what I thought. And you just kind of go, it was really great. I enjoyed it. Would you say it was one of those moments, despite the success where you have this little moment where you kind of look around and go like, Holy shit, I'm actually going to do this. Cause it, it goes away oh, yeah. the more successful you are, you know? No, that one, because I had done the draft diaries for really from 97 to 2012. And then all of a sudden I'm there. But the first one we did was Stern's draft. 
It was his last one. So I saw, I remember I saw him before the draft and he just gave me, it was a handshake, but he gave me that look like the same way somebody's dad would look at them when you're about to take their daughter out to the prom or something. <laughs> just kind of like, don't fuck me on this. It was one of those looks. And, uh, and it was, it was hilarious. It was his last one. And he was like milking the crowd and waving, you know, waving them to boo him more and all that stuff. It was pretty funny. And people don't know this too, that Stern, and it's, it's through the NBA media thing, but if you're going to be on the air covering any kind of NBA product, you have to like fill out this form and then be approved by the league. So when I did a couple Celtics games, I had to fill out this stuff and they're like, you're fine. And then I remember when I was trying to get on the draft show for radio before I was even allowed on it, because I had still I had been at ESPN since 06. And I was like, hey, look, I go to Portsmouth, I go to Orlando, and then I was hosting the Combine um, in Chicago, which I did for five years. I go, you know, can I, can I get on to this thing? And I remember, you know, again, just a lie. And they were like, well, you know, there's some people in the NBA that really don't like you. And so we can't get you approved to be part of an NBA broadcast product. And I was like, really? Ooh. So then knowing me, I call up somebody in the NBA that week. I go, hey, do you guys have a problem with me over there? And he was like, that's 100% not true. He's like, even if you said stuff we don't like, people like you. You're not an asshole. You care. You're a voice for the NBA type of thing. You're one of those guys that obviously loves this league. They're like, whoever told you that you're not on the broadcast because we have a problem with you, straight up lie to your face. And I was like, Awesome. We're going to do uh, the redraft. Do you like when I take these moments to kind of do a little therapy session on something that went wrong? No, because I, I think I think we both love the draft and we got to be there in the room for it a couple of times and, and work it. It was still fun. It was awesome. It was awesome. I loved it. I think the 2013 draft would be a great documentary. I Anthony Bennett was supposed... Plus, you had, I think that was the first draft when Woj was just tweeting... The picks before uh, ESPN was, and I remember like going on my phone and just seeing who the next pick was going to be, so I could be. It was either that year or fourteen. One of the two, I did. He just had all the picks before they were coming out in the stage, and he just was completely upending it. Do you remember when Jeff Goodman, at one point one year, he had somebody in the pipeline who was just giving him the pick, right? And that was crazy because then Jeff Goodman was tweeting out every pick, not as breaking news, but like, hey, this is officially the pick. And he just had it all night long because somebody, he had a guy. So the Nets had the first pick in 2000. They took Kenyon Martin in Cincinnati. Do you want the first pick or the second pick? What do you want? <laughs> you want to go one or two? I'll go one. All right. So will Kenyon Martin go first again in our uh, redraftables? Yes or no? Okay. Um, there is a case against him analytically here. If you want to go VORP, you know, he's, he's behind guys. If you want to go win shares, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a couple people behind him. You know, he was older coming in. And I would say as much as like, I, I've always had this thought, if you're going to be really, really good, maybe not just the great tier, but below that are really, really good. You're probably going to figure it out no matter what the fit. But Martin and Richard Jefferson going to play with Jason Kidd is the best thing that could have ever happened to him. It really was. And I think Martin, what he gave you, even as a notch, like I'm probably going to go with him versus Red's health. So I'm still going to take Martin number one, even though there are strong arguments with like two or three other names. 
I just I just like the whole Kenyon Martin thing, even though it was probably a little underwhelming for an overall number one pick. And offensively, he was a non-factor for a good chunk of the end of his career. So I think he was a better asset than Michael Red when they were both healthy. He also had a knee injury and he had the microfracture surgery. Michael Red blew out his ACL during the uh, 08 09 season. Twice. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so here's the case for Kmart. And I agree with you. I thought he should have been first pick. Second best player in two finals teams. I think that matters. Um, ruined Antoine Walker's career. <laughs> he really did. And I coincidentally, I rode an airplane to Chicago with him, just randomly sitting next to him in mid-February and didn't talk to him the whole time because I hate talking to people who get talked to all the time. But then he kind of was looking, he was side-eyeing me near the end and then he was like, hey man, you Bill? And so we just started talking and I was like, you broke my heart in 02. Like I thought we had you guys. I went to those games and I was like, you just destroyed Antoine. And he was saying when he went into the NBA, he just started talking about it. We're landing and he's like, I went in the NBA and Antoine was an all-star in the East. And I was like, I, I got to, I got to beat that guy. That's going to be the guy that I'm just going to be better than them. Cause if I'm better than him, then I'm the all-star in the East. And if you go back and watch those series, like he, he just kills him. Antoine couldn't figure out what to do against him. His 03 and 04 in the playoff, they make the finals in 03 and have a really good series against the Pistons in 04. They lose. He was 19 and 10 solid. Good, really above average defensive player. I thought, I thought like, not like a defensive player of the year, but definitely like an all defense kind of forward. Yeah, any of the bigs, any of the bigs that could play bigger than they were and then also hang athletically with any of the perimeter stuff, it just allowed you to do stuff. I mean, that's why, you know, I've mentioned how much I always love the piston structure of, of switching guys. But, you know, when you can switch and not give up stuff, that's that's what Kenyon was doing on top of running. I mean, get I, out and I, I liked his game. Him. I got to be honest. I did too. I, I, I did really too. enjoyed his game. He got signed and traded to Denver in 2004, and I forgot. So this is July 15th, 2004. Denver, it's three first round picks they end up giving up. Two of them were lottery protected. The one, the Denver pick that was in there actually was like very lightly protected. The picks ended up being Joey Graham, Ronaldo Balkman, and Marcus Williams. But, you know, he made $113 million. He had real value. He was also on that Denver team in 09. He wasn't one of the best three players at that point that almost made the finals. Pretty good career. Like, you definitely can't call him a bust. Like, he made a no, lot of money. No, and no, Yeah, no, and then no. had, had some good moments. So I thought that was a good pick. I had uh, Michael Red second. Um, Can I just finish with one Kenyan thing, though? I'm sorry. Yeah. I know it's annoying. But I remember, you know, I love tough guys. I love the real tough guys as opposed to the fake guys that do stuff. And when I asked a Nets guy, I go, you play with, with Kenyon, right? And I go, what's the story there? They're like, no, no, he's all the way real do. And he goes, he actually, like, guys were fucking scared of him, straight up. Antoine and, was. And I'm like, yeah, but this is his own teammates. Oh. I'm like, you guys were scared of him? We were like, yeah, like, if he would get into it and you were fucking with him in practice, like, he, he'd do this thing. He'd be like, better get my name out your motherfucking mouth. And then, like, guys would be like, whoa, we're supposed to be on the same team here. So I love hearing stuff like that, though, because that means you know that that's somebody who's not going to wilt. So there's a cut. So I like this conversation. There's a couple guys. Oakley was obviously the, the captain of this team. But there's some guys over the years, and you talk to anybody from that era, and they're like, there's difference between the tough guys in the game, but the actual, like, don't fuck with that guy, guys. 
Stackhouse was another one like that. Yeah, I'd heard that too. I've heard it's, that for years. Yeah. Yes, that there's famous Stackhouse stories, him punching out Kirk Snyder after a game and shit like that. Um, Tony Allen, I think, was like that. Where it's like, yeah, don't don't actually fuck with Tony Allen. Like you can tra- talk trash with him on the court. Uh, don't actually fuck with him because he he'll go there. And I think Yeah. Zach Randolph. Zach Randolph is another one. Yeah, don't you you can have a little fun, do a little trash talk, but don't go too far. Um, but I yeah, think Kenyon, Kenyon wasn't having it. Yeah. Kenyon was legit. He definitely was like that. All right. My second pick, and this would be for Vancouver was picking the spot. Poor Vancouver, just getting slaughtered in these drafts. I feel uh, like there's not enough bring a team back to Vancouver support as there is with the Sonics. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, th- I think we have. Seattle and Vancouver would be my top two picks for to have NBA teams again. Oh, you actually think they should have a team again? Yeah. I was kind of... I think they got host. Yeah, I think they got host too. I I don't understand why people wouldn't... You know, look, there's there's always going to be this Canadian thing that some guys from down here... I'd rather live in Vancouver than a lot of cities. Me too. Michael Red is my second pick. He, from 2004 through 2008, four seasons, he averaged 24 a game. I didn't realize it was that money. Uh... 45% 45% field goal, 37% from three. He was one of those uh, old school um, old school guys from, if you just put them forward 15 years, probably would have had a much more fun career. Probably taking eight or nine threes. Third team all NBA. And then uh, when he tore his knee again in the 08-09 season, it was over. But he was a guy, Milwaukee wasn't very good in the mid-2000s. I don't think anybody was in more fake trades than him. I know I personally threw him into about a hundred, but it was always one of those, oh, you know, if they could package blah, 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 and this and get Michael Red, that could be the missing piece. And he just was in that group for three, four years. I liked his game too. Thought he was good. Um, so that's my second pick. Now you're up on the clock three. I'll be interested to see what you do here. I, I think there's like a no-brainer number three pick. Uh I don't know if I yeah, Red blew out his his ACL and MCL in the same left knee twice. Yeah. And you're right. Like he has that stretch where you go, man, he went off. And then when it was over, it was absolutely over. But he'd signed that you got a six-year extension back then. And that was the first year where LeBron, I was going back and looking at the 2005 free agency stuff. And after a free agency, they got Larry Hughes and Danielle Marshall when they wanted Red, they wanted Joe Johnson. I don't know. He was talking about trying to recruit Bosch out of there, which didn't was going to be way too early unless they were going to try to tell him to force a trade and bully him. But uh, yeah, people thought Michael Red was going to go there because he went to Ohio people State. thought Red. Yeah, that's right. They thought he was going to go there. But remember, like the, the raises were bigger incrementally year to year than they are now. They, they used to make more of an incentive for you to stay home with the longer deal and the better raises. And Red was like, look, I'm going to stay here. But that team, you're right. Like they, they had 42 wins. Because it took for a while to get Red started. It was really his fourth year when he was like, whoa, this guy's awesome. And then that team never won more than 42 games. Okay. Uh, I guess I just wanted to use my free agency notes there because I wrote them down. Sorry. You I think enjoyed the it. third pick is obvious. I do. right now, there's there's two names. Give it. Give him. Who's on here. your board? Let's hear it. Well, it's Miller or Turkaloo. Okay. And Miller is another guy when you go back. Red wasn't as surprising. There's some Miller stretches where you go, man, he he lit it up a little bit. And the second leg of his career, kind of like our Ray Allen, I- Allen Iverson thing, 
But I actually think I like Peak Turkaloo better than Miller. So I'm, wow. going, I'm going Turkaloo. Okay, make the case. Well, if I have to start with 15 years, um, I love that he went to Sacramento when people were kind of like, ah, Paige is in his way. And it wasn't, <laughs> it was just like, why? Because he's another tall white guy that's not from the States. Uh, it took a while, but from 0405 till 2010, and what he did and how he fit into that Orlando team. Like, I just thought he had moments during those Orlando runs where Turkaloo was like an incredibly talented, scary guy. I know he floats. I know his rebounding numbers are pretty, uh, you know, they're just not as good as you'd want him to be. But he actually became like a pretty good playmaker there for Orlando there towards the end. I know the end was, you know, by the time he's back in Orlando, 33 Clippers the last couple of years, it's kind of over a stint with Phoenix. But this is more of a talent thing where I think the peak version of Turkaloo was somebody who could get me a tougher bucket than Miller. And I think he's another one that 10 years later, you'd be running a lot of the stuff like they were doing anyway in these playoff games for um, for Orlando, which we did one of them on the Book of Basketball. We did game four of the 09 Lakers series where they're coming out, setting a screen, spreading the floor for him. And he was pretty crafty. I I, I don't totally understand why Sacramento couldn't figure out how to use him. And then he goes to San Antonio for the 0304 season where they lose basically in that Fisher shot. I think they would have won the title that year and they couldn't really figure it out either. And it wasn't until he got to Orlando that he got unleashed as this guy who's like, I'm going to score 60 in a game. I'm going to make almost 40% of my threes. I don't really need the ball all the time, but, but in crunch time, you can kind of go to me and I'm weirdly reliable. Um, I don't understand why Sacramento couldn't figure out how to play him and Page together. You would have thought, like, great, put both of them out there with C-Web. Like, let's go. What are you trading him for Brad Miller for? I thought that was that was very strange. Can I read you the names of the Ron in the trade? Yeah. All right, because I was yeah, perfect. That's exactly what I was going to do right now because it's some awesome names in this. So it's a three-teamer: Indiana, Sacramento, and San Antonio. And the only thing we know for sure is that Indiana is just going to end up with white guys. Like, however this plays out, they're getting white guys in the trade. So, Indiana trades Brad Miller to Sacramento. And they trade Ron Mercer to the Spurs. Turkaloo also goes to the Spurs. Sacramento trades Scott Pollard to Indiana. And San Antonio trades Danny Ferry to Indiana. It's It's a double Caucasian boon for the Pacers. And uh, and Turkaloo is by far the best guy in that trade. I, I did enjoy that one Brad Miller season on the Kings, but um, it seemed like a heist. I remember writing this at the time. What a heist for the Spurs. Like, really excited to see Turkaloo and the Spurs. Never really happened. It wasn't until the Magic that he kind of found his, his place. Um, I think the Magic contract, though, was... Like, I think at the time that was, I bet you if you go back and look at this, you're like, what are the Magic doing? Like, they're giving Turkaloo this much money, but he yeah. was only at 0405. We're talking him being 25 years old. And the reason, you know, at first when you mentioned the Pacers getting rid of Brad Miller and you're talking about, like, Brad Miller was so white, he counted as two white guys. So that's why they had yeah. to get Ferry and Pollard back. Right. <laughs> like anybody that packs a dip in the fourth quarter of a game, <laughs> we need at least two white guys to make up for his whiteness. It would have been fun to have Brad Miller in the Artest melee, though. I'm, I feel like we were cheated out of that. I'm taking uh, Mike Miller with the fourth pick. So 
Kenny Martin one, Michael Red two, Turkaloo three, Mike Miller four, Mike Miller third on my board. I couldn't be happier right now. 41% three point shooter career. Career. I mean, that's man of the like, year. That Six includes of the year. five years when he's luggage at the end of his career and still finished over 41%. Uh, 05 through 08 on Memphis on some pretty sneaky good Memphis teams. 15, 5, and 5, 48, 42, 78% splits, 42% from three, that whole stretch, playing a lot of minutes. Game five, 2012 finals, seven for eight from three, 23 points. You mentioned uh, how Battier had that huge game seven in 2013. Miller did the same thing in game five. And that was one of those series that it was a 4 1 finals. The consensus now is that, oh, yeah, Miami won in five. They had it the whole way. Those first four games all came down to like one or two plays. And even in game five, I didn't feel like that series was done. Miller came out, shot the lights out. Um, had that not happened, they would have gone back to OKC for game six and seven. So it was, was it a must win? I think every finals game is a must win, but. Um, there's a scenario where, you know, Durant gets hot in that game five and maybe it goes back to OKC. Now the crowd's going nuts. Who knows? LeBron hadn't won a title yet. There's different variables. Miller shut it all down. He was awesome in that game. Probably my, the jump shot I was the most jealous of just personally. Like if, if you could have bought somebody's jump shot on eBay, I think, I think I would have taken Mike Miller. Who would you have taken? Ray. Yeah. So Ray's the other choice there. I really like yeah. Mike Miller's jump shot. Uh, but, you know, Miller, Miller's a good pick. And uh, did, was it close for you on, on Turkaloo or Miller? Or were you, like, adamant? Because I was, I was split going into it. I always, I always liked him. And I just thought he was in weird situations for most of his career that um, if you kind of just did his career 10 times, I think there's these universes where, you know, there's times when it could have been awesome for him. Um, you look at all the teams that could have drafted him in this draft where it goes New Jersey, Vancouver, Quipper, Chicago, Orlando, Atlanta, Chicago again, Cleveland. I mean, all those teams sucked for years. Any situation he was going to was going to be a bad situation. I it, It's a shame that he couldn't have just gone to a team that was good, but for one year ended up in the lottery, you know, where he was like just playing with good players all the time because I always thought he had a really nice feel for the game. I got to read you some Mike Miller trade trivia. So he was the last piece of the Chris Webber, Penny Hardaway trade from 1993. He was the last first round pick. I couldn't believe that when I looked that up today. I was like, that pick carried over from 1993. He was traded in 2003 with a first round pick for Drew Gooden, which is a trade that just seems abysmal now. I can't believe you would have thought Drew Gooden had a first for Mike Miller. No, it was the other way. Then... He was in that crazy K-Love, O.J. Mayo, Chris Wallace fiasco where Chris Wallace, I what did he have? The fifth pick? Yeah. And he, I forget what it is. No, it was but, four. Did he have four and he went down to five? Yeah. He flips picks so he can end up with O.J. Mayo and gives Minnesota Kevin Love and Mike Miller. Both of them. So... Somehow they Chris Wallace goes with the two best guys in the trade. Still trying to figure that out. And then a year later, um, he's traded with Randy Foy in Joe House's least favorite Wizards Bullets trade of all time. 
Randy Foy and Mike Miller for the number five pick in 2009, which could have been Steph Curry or Ricky Rubio, except Washington didn't have it. Khan ends up getting it and then somehow whiffs and takes Johnny Flynn. And there you go. Um, Four trades where the other team probably uh, has the fans have their feelings hurt. I really enjoyed Mike Miller's game. I can't believe he's a top four pick in a redraft, but uh, there we are. Who do you have for five? I just wanted to add to that that draft in 2008 just to make sure we had it right. Um, now, that's right. Yeah, he had – Wallace had five, and he traded up to get to three with Mayo, and Westbrook went in between them, and Westbrook at the time was – like four was kind of a reach. Felt like that's as high as yeah. it could possibly go. When we do, um, if we do the 08 redraft, Westbrook will be obviously four or higher. But I, I loved Westbrook in college. I was stunned when he went four. It's it seemed like you did love him. I did. I ha- I have stuff written. I I he was like my big sleeper in the draft. But I thought he was like just this energy guy off the bench. I didn't think he was gonna be Russell Westbrook. No, I just, no, I don't. I just did. liked him. Presti didn't. None of those guys did. PJ Carlissimo, who you know, I became close with. I was like, "What was going on there?" He goes, "I was screaming, banging the table, going Brook Lopez, Brook Lopez, Brook Lopez." And he goes, "And every time I come back to Presti, Presti be like, hey, we really kind of love the idea of what this Westbrook guy can be.'" And I'm, I'm telling you, like, you may have liked him, but like for Presti to actually pull the trigger on it, that's well, especially stones. over Kevin Love. Yeah, because like, I watched that that UCLA. I watched a lot of that team that year. I watched I just that enjoyed team them. nonstop. Hey, yeah, for Kevin Love not to be the first UCLA guy off that team in a draft was inconceivable. Westbrook was like the first like couple months seemed almost like a six man even on the UCLA team, and then he started to blossom. Cool, because well, Holiday was still there too. Yeah, man, that team was amazing. You know, they played slower Holland style and all that stuff. So I mean, hell, I, I honestly think like Presti taking Westbrook. When he did with the other Great options, it, it's seriously, I think it's like one of the greatest picks of that decade because you have to go back and go, okay, but what are you actually drafting? And back then we were still a little more position obsessed. You know, it's the same thing like with Turkaloo and, and Pages you were mentioning. Now you just figure it out, which is kind of crazy that like, no, we can't do that. Like we already have a 6'10 white guy. We can't do that. We can't just put another guy out there that can shoot. Like think how stupid it was that we didn't let basketball have this evolution where it's Oh, wait, those guys are both really big and can handle and can shoot. Well, why don't we just let them both play? <laughs> right. And and Westbrook is, is another argument to that. By the way, in that Miller deal, Tuan was actually recycled in that trade. And Brian that's Cardinal. Walker. Yeah. Who do you have uh, at That's five? actually my pick. Brian Cardinal, the custodian, a.k.a. the janitor, a.k.a. Citizen Payne. Brian Cardinal out of Purdue. Are you Are you being serious right now? No, I just wanted people to freak out oh, about Jesus. the Nash, the Nash Iverson thing. No, all right. So this is where it gets a little interesting, but I do think you're going to go Jamal Crawford. Uh, I liked him more. I thought he would be different. Like he was a guy I liked a lot before this. He ended up going eighth, but just the fact that he put up buckets for this long up until two years ago. I mean, he was in the league last year, so. You know, I know he played for a million teams. I'm not saying you're winning any games with him, but he was somebody that just, you know, to, to give you that much. Look, this also has a lot to do with the other options that are out there. I just think value. Hey, am I getting almost 20 years of shooting from this guy despite that it's a little isolation heavy? Yeah, whatever. I'll take Jamal Crawford. Three six man in the year words. I had him at five as well. I think it's the right pick. He's one of those guys 
if he's like your eighth guy, incredible. If he's your sixth guy, that that actually <laughs> good. Means, yeah, but that also means your coach might be playing him in crunch time. Yeah. And if he he's is. one of your best four guys, you're not winning anything, as we found out with the first 10 years of his career. I always kind of liked his game. I mean, he's one of the worst defensive players of any good player the last 20 years. He was just a complete sieve. But the the thing that was annoying with him on the Clippers near the end there was he really would take the biggest shot of the game. He, yeah. He'd be like, I, he is the Marcus Smart-Edis where it's like, I got this. And it's like, no, you, I'm not even sure you should be out there with five minutes left. He's, a, he's to me, like, you almost want him the way the Celtics used Eddie House in 2008. That's my dream Jamal Crawford scenario. Give me an awesome 16 minutes a game, instant offense, and then kind of stay out of the way. If I'm trying to win a title. If I'm, yeah, seven, eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, you're getting subbed out. Yeah, you have to, you can't play him. Um, he played 74 playoff games, 39% field goal shooter, 31% from three. The other thing with him, there was this thing like that. He was this awesome three point shooter and he, he just wasn't, you know, he was like, he was the master of the four point play, which, you know, congratulations. That's great. But that's not helping me win a title. He just wasn't that good of a three point shooter. And he was one of those guys that always seemed like the shot was going to go in, but it went in a lot less than I think people remembered. So I'm I'm sure people are listening to this going, wait a second, what was wrong with Jamal Crawford? He was awesome. I was like, sorry. Um, he's a nice player, a ni- nice piece to have on a team, but um, you know, just not as good of a shooter as I think he thought he was. He played in big cities, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, LA. He also had a little bit of time with Minnesota Phoenix at the end. He had a Portland run in there, but he like hit all the major markets. I love that he has a nice New York stretch in there. He actually went for 20 a game with the Knicks when he was 27, but he has become oddly overrated a little bit because we've seen the crossover a million times on the internet and it's sick. We've seen him shake people and pull up from deep. The four point plays. I I wouldn't say like, he's not even close whenever you start going like historic, great shooters of all time. You're not talking about Jamal Crawford. I think everybody really likes him. Okay. So that's the key point. Dudes love this guy. So overrating. Like I feel guilty even saying that a little bit, but the idea of him is like he's a really good player. He had a really long career. He came out really early. It was just one year at Michigan. But I think everybody loves this dude. Every time I see him on a panel or some show, like guys light up a little bit. So he's held up a little bit higher than the fact is that, you know, look, he was never, I don't think of him, like I never felt like Jamal Crawford was a star. And I think sometimes he's talked about that way. So two things there. One of the most popular actual players with the other players. I think he's like on a short list of just knew everybody. Everybody loved him. Also really popular with the media. And there was a year when I went the last time he won the six man award or he was up for it. And it was just insane that he, that he was even a candidate, but I think just the media really liked him. He was always really gracious and thoughtful and awesome to everybody. And you know, it's smart. It was well played, but um, you know, I think if he's playing 35 minutes for you, you're not, you're not making round two of the playoffs. I don't think Um, my six pick, this is where it gets dark. Just for the people listening, here's who's on the board right now. No particular order. (laughs) Mo Peterson, (laughs) Quentin Richardson, Desmond Mason, Jamal McGlord, Darius Miles, Eddie House, Deshaun Stevenson, Joel Prisbilla. Joel Prisbilla should have gone with Joel Prisbilla. I think he would have been more intimidating. 
Uh, there's a little Speedy Claxton, Ed- Eduardo Nahara, undrafted Malik Allen. I like Nahara. Keon Dooling. That's really what we're looking for here. So I'm going to go with Quentin Richardson because for two years, 0405, he was 16 and six, almost seven threes a game, made 36%. Not great, but not awful, but was. You know, in modern times, more of a three and D guy who could rebound a little bit, a little bit ahead of his time. I liked him on the Suns teams. Um, he was fun with Darius Miles when they were doing the tap their head thing. I think he was a a liked teammate in different places, and his career wasn't bad. He became kind of a contract figure there for the second half of it, but um, at least I know he could contribute to a good team because we saw it. So I'm taking him six, Quentin Richardson. He could have been in the mix maybe for five. Yeah. Uh, you know, he ended up being a nice player in, in a good role player where I think you're right. You knew kind of exactly what you were getting from him. And then they did have that little run there with the Clippers where it was just so much fun. But again, that's not necessarily what we're drafting. And that also means that Darius Miles is still available, which I imagine will be available here for a while. This draft, by the way, was one of the drafts that kind of was like, hey, we're still a little wake-up call here. Stop falling in love with the long athletic guys, long length, because Stromile Swift is the poster child for that one. Love Stromile Swift coming out. Um, Stromile Swift was almost instant flame out. I was going back and reading Billy Knight, who was the GM that pulled the trigger. Do you remember the head coach for Vancouver in 2000? Was it Stu Jackson? Is Sidney Lowe. Oh yeah, he was. Didn't he go like nine and forty-one or some some terrible record? Six and, and forty-four. They. I went back and read the article of them being interviewed after the pick. They mentioned, "Hey, this guy's young." Like every other sentence, every other sentence. And one thing I've always noticed with busts, it's unbelievable how often this repeats itself, is that you don't play nearly as well your rookie year. And then what they do is they give you a ton of minutes in your sophomore year to prove that you do actually suck. And you'll see so many guys that weren't good that have this real nice bump. And be like, you know, his best career year was his second season. Right. And, it, and it's not because he improved and then fell off. It's because they actually gave you more shots and forced the issue with you, ran more stuff through you just to make sure they could, okay, we actually made a mistake here. And so I stopped. It was kind of my Earl Clark reckoning. Earl Clark, Louisville, long, score, did some stuff at Louisville. And I go, you know what? But if, you, if you're just long and I don't see that you have real basketball skills, this, this draft fucked with my head so bad because I was like, stop loving all these really tall guys that can't dribble and can't shoot. The first one was Brad Sellers going back to the 80s. Wow. That's the first time where I, I was just out on those type of guys from that point on because MJ kind of needed Brad Sellers in the late 80s and he just was a stiff. Like he, you know, he was... The six eleven guy who couldn't shoot a rebound. So it's like, well, what's left? What are we doing? Yeah, yeah what are we doing? Why here? are you out there? And and you're soft. So, um, yeah, I was shocked yeah. to find out Stromile Swift played for nine seasons. I don't I remember. Know. I honestly, if if we, you and I are two of the bigger basketball fans, I would love to just talk to random people. Maybe this should be a rigor series. What was your favorite Stromile Swift memory? Because I have none. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> anything about his career. They had a dunk on, um, it was another LSU guy who also is one of my other guys for this. Tyrus Thomas. Oh, Tyrus I Thomas. Yeah. Right. 
So Tyrus Thomas. Wait, save it for was, the 06 redraftables because that's when we got to do. Because I remember I was on a flight with a GM leaving Virginia after the Portsmouth tournament. And I go, this Tyrus Thomas run. Because, you know, he and Davis had that really nice run. He goes, oh, my God. And he sold me on Thomas. I'm still young. I'm impressionable. He sold me because he goes, not only can Ty Thomas do all this front court stuff, he can run your offense. He's the sickest athlete. All these different things. And I go, I got to stop liking these guys. Although Tyrus had a little bit more well-rounded stuff in his game. But, um, yeah, the Stromile Swift memory, it was going around this week because everybody sent it to me because they know how I feel about Stromile Swift, is he dunks on Tyrus Thomas. And Tyrus gets back into the play to try to reject it. And Swift, I mean, the dunk is one of the best dunks you've seen in a game. It's that awesome of a dunk. But, you know, you get a little bit older, you start thinking, who do I want to marry versus who I want to date? And your valuations get better. I have an incredible Stromile Swift fact for you. Career record in the playoffs, 0-7. Like games, not not series. Never won a playoff. No, I'm game. aware. <laughs> no, I mean oh and seven, like not playoff rounds, games, oh and seven. Never won a playoff game. Nine seasons. So who are you taking seven? You didn't tell me. He actually got a decent second contract by the Rockets, too. But the, but the thing is he made forty two million, forty three million. Those good athletes who could offensive rebound would just throw you off the scent. You know, you watch the one game. The uh, Ed Pinkney was like that too. Ed Pinkney was way better than Stromile Swift, but those those lanky forwards who could like just get a put back, you're like, oh, that guy, oh, and it was it was always deceiving. Who do you have at seven? Stromile was done as a starter at 25 years old. Yeah. It's okay. Tough. All right. Um, going through the board here. Going through the board. We could probably speed it up at this point of the of the redraft. <laughs> 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 almost out of material uh you know i <laughs> i think i'm gonna go eddie house wow i thought i was gonna get him later eddie house do you know how many how many playoff threes he hit in his entire career take guess no i don't I take don't. guess guess 12 no 39 i thought it was gonna be like 120 yeah, I, I knew it was thought, going to be low because he's not in the playoffs many times. Um, I just figured between the the Phoenix and the two Boston seasons, I don't know why in my head he had made all these threes, but he was in two Boston years, 29 for 68 from three. But he helped win them the title in game he four did. and game six. Like he made huge shots. This is a massive Celtics playoff. But who am I overvalued? Like who am I missing on? There's not another draft room behind me that's freaking out being like, I can't believe they took Eddie House, who one day they found a scattering report on him. And I know I've said this story before, but the scattering report said, won't shoot unless he has the basketball. <laughs> I had him 10th, just, just so you know, on my board. So oh, it, like, it wasn't a reach. That's a big upset. On <laughs> no, it wasn't a reach. I think oh, it's not a reach. Nothing now is a reach. I thought... I'm um, going to take a good locker room guy pretty well, soon. So that's the case for Eddie House. His awesome locker room guy could actually come in and make a big shot in a game. It's not It's not the wrong pick. I had Desmond Mason seven, so I'm going to take him an eighth. Um, you know, like a bunch of the guys in this draft, at his peak was a 15 and five. Um, I just want to say he was enough of an asset that he was basically the centerpiece of the Ray Allen trade. Because if you look at that trade, it was Gary Payton, who is an expiring contract, and Desmond Mason 
for Ray Allen, Ronald Murray, Kevin Ollie, and a 2003 first round pick. That was that, like the fact that Milwaukee basically they gave up their first round pick and Ray Allen so they could get Gary Payton for two months and Desmond Mason. So he had to have had real value back then, unless Ray Allen is the biggest cancer in the world. I didn't realize it, but that's one of the uh, weirder trades. So anyway, I'm taking him. I'm mad that Eddie House is off the board. Who do you have at number nine? I look I, the fact that Eddie House could come in and make big playoff shots that that puts him in another class where a lot of these guys didn't even get the chance to do that. So that's why I'm going. I think it's a reach because I actually meant to take this guy before him and then take Eddie House after. But it looks like what I've gone. Uh, Jamal McGlure should have gone this late. He should have gone in either of the last two picks. <laughs> you said that without any irony at all. No, what what are you talking about? Like Jamal McGlore deserves to go seven eighth, not ninth in the two thousand redraft. Jamal McGlore was in the redraftables green room going, What Eddie House, really? Yeah, it's tough. He made an all-star team. Made an all-star team. And I'm gonna tell you, the more I dug into the Jamal McGlore story, the more I realized the numbers don't don't do it justice. So it's just the unquantifiable Jamal McGlore. He, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a lot to add. Uh, a double, double with new Orleans. You know, I mean, I always kind of liked was- him. I, uh, I am up. This is the 10th pick. <laughs> yeah. 10th pick. Darius miles. Can't fall any further. He, I got to take him here. The case for Darius miles who did get hurt to be fair. He, yes. He is another, like we talked about earlier, these guys that I'm not sure what they did. He couldn't shoot threes, uh, had no post-up game to speak of, was a career 47% shooter, was a, just a good athlete, was fun to watch on a fast break, had a lot of personality. I'm not really sure what the best case scenario of it was. In Portland, he was playing on the 06 Blazers before he got hurt. He was 14 and four and a half a game basically. But, um, but had enough value that he got it traded for Andre Miller when Andre Miller had a lot of value that Clippers Cavs trade. Uh, it never totally happened, but I just want to say I really enjoyed him. I was rooting for it the whole time and I still haven't totally given up on him. We always talk about the guys we haven't given up on yet. I have no idea why I wanted it to happen so bad. I, I thought he had a nice feel for the game. Like he was a good passer. He, he did, he had the right instincts. He just, he was like a six foot 10 tweener. I six foot nine, I guess. I never knew what he was supposed to be or like, who was the guy, who was the prototype that he was supposed to be following? And I don't think he knew it either. Yeah. Because back then too, we were still doing this McGrady stuff where anybody that was big and handle had a little bit of vision. And it's just a knock. It's almost insulting to McGrady how many different guys we thought would like be these next tall athletic guys. But I'm I'm with you. Like I remember being on the East Coast, and I had a thing for Darius as I mentioned earlier because you know there was I don't think he was ever going to St. John's, but I was always paying attention. And that's when you kind of first started your season ticket thing too with the Clippers, right? And it was fun. It it was kind of like wait a minute, this team might not be very good. But this could be something. That was it's when I like got a, when I got league pass. I remember watching a lot of them. That one really fun year. It seemed like something was happening with them. Yes. Yeah. And, and and he seemed like he had a chance. 
It's funny. I remember when I was preparing for the 2013 draft, watching the Giannis highlights of him at the Greek YMCA when he, back when Giannis was like six, eight, thinking that he reminded me of Darius miles. This is before he grew an extra three and a half inches when he got here, but same kind of thing. It's like, what is this? This is something. It's funny how we just get attracted to those guys. Like, ah, there's something, if he can only unlock. But now I look back on miles. I'm like, what would he have unlocked? I don't know the roadmap for him to be an all-star. But I'm taking. But that's why this stuff is so hard. Because yeah. I mean, I couldn't. I'm so glad you said that because there's a version of the Giannis thing where you go, "I'm not falling for this again," right? And there are plenty of teams that also did it. It's like this draft was a draft of redheads, and then all the GMs were like blondes from here on out. You know, right? Giannis. Can we went, still say that. Giannis, Male or female, either way. You know, <laughs> Giannis went 15th, and it seemed like pretty fair. In fact, it seemed yeah. maybe two, maybe two spots early. But it was like, all right, yeah, roll the dice with the fucking Greek kid. We'll see. But at that point, he was And that's what the nine. Bucks were doing. That's yeah. what they were like, ah, whatever. We'll, we'll give this one a shot. So um, I like the Miles. And by the way, just I'm, I'm happy for him, too, because we know that it was really rough for him. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know these guys. But I guess I'm with you. I've always had kind of a soft spot for him. I for love some reason. And I'm just, I'm happy that it looks like, you know, he and Q getting a podcast going and all that stuff. I'm just, I'm just happy. Um, because I, you know, reading into it, it's just sad stuff. So I'm glad for him. one. Uh, one thing that's been lost, I think they did a six episode series of the life where they followed the Clippers around, which I can't believe isn't on YouTube. If anyone has this on their VCR or whatever, like please put this on YouTube for America because it was a lot of like behind the scenes with with Quinn Richardson and D Miles, and I remember them just there's scenes of them getting gas and shit like that. And it was just like, I just want to hang out with these guys. <laughs> I like these guys. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's rip through this. Who do you have at 11? Um, I'm going to go Mo Pete. Probably should have gone higher. Yeah. Another guy should. that went, he went too low. His overall analytics, he holds up. He's like a top seven, top eight guy. And, um, you know, unfortunately for him, I think, you know, he was always kind of an off ball guy, which could leave you out of plays back then a little bit too much. So, you know, you weren't as active. We're now off balls, like kind of where you want to be. And he would have been more productive today, but he had a better career. I think than you realize, you know, a lot of these guys would be like, Oh, you know, this guy stuck around. It's easy to forget kind of the second half of some of these careers, but Mo Pete probably should have gone higher. 37% career three point, uh, shooter. I have, uh, wow. I can't believe he's still here. Joel Prisbilla. I'm grabbing with the 12th spot here. Um, you know, Elgin was a veteran of the lottery process. Line of the night. Joe Prisbella, just a veteran. <laughs> played uh played 13 seasons. Had, you know, a couple moments there with Portland in the 0809 range when they were doing the two-headed monster thing at center. Um, so in 08 and 09 together. He's playing 23 minutes a game and averaging almost nine rebounds a game. So he's just kind of one of those big white guys who kind of knew how to put his hands up and grab a couple rebounds and could finish a pass in the paint. So I'm getting value there with at, at 12 with Prisbilla. You could do a lot worse than Joel Prisbilla the rest of the way in this so draft. He's a veteran. Who do you have 13? Another guy that I whiffed on here, Marcus Pfizer. Oh, I was always, I was always, no, I'm not taking him. I just wanted to mention Pfizer, you know, all Iowa state guys. It's kind of like the, the Babe Ruth league. You want to check the birth certificate there. 
But he was only 22 when he came in, but immediately it wasn't going to work. And then everybody's like, why are they taking him with Brand? And what I did love about the Bulls, remember Jerry Krause's famous line after they broke everything up in 1998, which really thinking back on it is one of the dumbest things. Like that doesn't get knocked enough for being one of the dumbest thing in the history yeah. of modern sports. Then in 98, they said, okay, well, fine. Like we're sick of Phil and MJ and this whole thing. And we don't want to be the Celtics. That was a line. Jerry Krause saying, we don't want to be the Celtics and hang on to these guys and then be irrelevant, and then have a forever rebuild. So let's just do this. And they take Pfizer. They end up trading Brand to get another pick later on in the in the um, Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler thing. And from 98, when they won their last title and won 60 games, the next three years they went 13 and 60. They went 13 and 37, 17 and 65, 15 and 67. They had one second round appearance in the 12 years after that 1998 deal, and they took Pfizer, who I liked. But he was just too small for a power forward then, not quick enough in all those things. He had the ACL tear. He had 31 tattoos in March of 2006. That was the full count there. Also a youth minister. Marcus Pfizer started in 35 games for his career. He was so, also um, turned his life around after he retired. Yeah, youth minister. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think he was a pretty, pretty sketchy. As a teammate, I think he was one of those uh, one of one of those guys when he played. It was kind of like stay away from that guy, and not locked in. Yeah, um, early on. Right. Then uh, I'm, turned his life around. I just want to talk about Pfizer a little bit because that's another whiff. I got a, I got whiffs left and right in this one. I think I even like Keon Dueling a little bit more. Dueling might be the call here. I'm going to go Keon Dueling. Okay, that's fair. Could be. Could be a, a ninth man potentially on a, like a second round playoff team. I was going to take Nahara for screens and toughness. I've always had a thing for Eduardo Nahara, but I, I just don't think it's fair to take take him over dueling. Jerome is so, still there. I don't want to end up with Stroh Miles Swift, and I'm not taking Pfizer or Courtney Alexander. Um, Speedy I'm Claxton. Gonna, well, so I think the right pick here is either Speedy Claxton or Nahara just because they made playoffs. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go off the grid. I'm going to surprise people here. AJ Guyton? I'm going to take... Chris, uh, Chris Carrawell? I'm going to take Demar Johnson. Oh, I see what you're doing there. So if you look at his first two years... I can't do that. He was... Even, his, even before he had the car accident, he wasn't good. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, I'll take I'll take uh, Speedy Claxton then, because in 03, he actually played crunch time minutes for a team that won the title. When when Parker was still in that like almost like 2008 Rondo version of Tony Parker, when uh, you know those young point guards, you can't rely on them every finals game, and you you kind of have to need that veteran guy that can come in and kind of right the ship. Speedy Claxton was there, and his. His uh his Spurs stuff, twenty four playoff games a year is fourteen minutes a game. Um, average five a game. That's all I need. He was in the rotation of a finals team, so there you go. Uh, I I have him just a nudge over Stroh Swift and Jerome Muiza. Couple other names here: Lavar Postel, who I loved, St. John's. Um, I was kind of like Mark Malik Allen. Malik Allen. Um, Not drafted. I remember. 
Khalid Al-Amin played one season. How about the Bulls after this? I did find some Bulls articles that were bullish on their future. It's like, man, we got Pfizer and Crawford, and we got Guyton, Jake Voskel, and Khalid Al-Amin all in uh, all in succession. Well, you mentioned the, the idiotic Bulls rebuild before. It actually worked. They just did it for the wrong drafts because you think about it, they... So in 99, they got the first pick out in brand. 2000, they have the fourth pick and the seventh pick. And then in uh, 2001, they flipped brand for a top three pick and they had another top three pick. So they ended up, they had five top seven picks in a three-year stretch, although brand, they turned into one of those. But uh, just really bad luck to have a fourth pick and a seventh pick in the same draft and not only go 0 for 2, <laughs> but it's justifiable that you went 0 for 2. It's like it's like you can't have worse luck than that. Yeah, you actually no one should have no one should have. You know, um Yarick, who played for uh the Spurs, I always kind of liked him. He came in the league, I think, when he was 24, Marco. Oh, I had a whole couple season ticket runs with him. Cause he the first couple years I had the Clipper tickets, he was pretty competent. I actually liked his game, but he's uh, big too. Like yeah. He, he put physical. a beating on some smaller guys as I would watch. And the only thing I have left on this too is historically, as you've mentioned plenty of times, and it's it's clearly thought out how horrible this is historically. But I was going and looking at the teams that were drafting. Like when you look at the top six teams in this draft, how bad their starting lineups were. Yeah. Like this, the basketball isn't even close to being like we know it's better now and the depth of stars and the exciting storylines and all this stuff, but it's almost easy to forget like where the hell were these teams? Like what were they doing? The Nets, now that first year Martin didn't have Kid, it was Marbury. And this actually isn't a terrible five, but it's Steph, Van Horn, Kenyon, Kendall Gill, who was, you know, at that point on the way out, and Aaron Williams was just a role guy. Vancouver's team was Sharif Abdul Rahim, Bibby. Dickerson was going to get her Othella Big Country. The Clippers had a 21-year-old Odom, Jeff McGinnis, Eric Piedkowski, Olawa Candy, and McGetty was only playing like 19 minutes a game. The Bulls had Ron Mercer, Elton Brand, Artest, but Artest wasn't Artest then no. at all. He was 12 a game. Hoiberg, Bryce Drew was getting fucking real minutes all year long. Um, I mean, the Magic had T-Mac, who at 21 put up a 27-8-5 season, but after him... It was Daryl Armstrong. Grant Hill played four games. Bo Outlaw, D. Brown. Atlanta's lineup was Jason Terry, Kukoc, 17 games, Matumbo, Jim Jackson, and Lorenzen Wright. These teams, those are 30 guys that were playing the majority of the minutes for those six games or for those six teams. It was a talent swoon. And it lasted. It really was. It lasted basically all the way to 07, 08 range. You can even see it if you go back and you read some of the trade value columns I did where you just, I'm just laying out what the assets were in the moment and guys who are like 18 or 20 or 24, it's nuts. You can't believe it. Um, I think once we hit 09, 2010 range, uh, I think things really, really flipped. But you also had, you know, I've written about it a million times about the uh, too much, too fast, too soon era from like 93 through 99 of all those young guys who just got, too much money too fast and just didn't have the careers that they should have had. When you think about the 2000 season, this should have been the peak of Kenny Anderson and, and big dog Robinson and guys like that. Some of them made it Derek Coleman. 
there are all these blue chip guys that should have been in their absolute heyday and they just weren't. So you're missing like probably nine to 10 blue chippers that should have been awesome. And, and Vin Baker, um, he's already starting to Peter. Sean Kemp's already basically played his way out of the league. And you go on down the line, it's just like, what happened? But that's probably a, a story for another podcast. But that was also, too, you remember the lockout and people being like, are you guys kidding me? Like, we started this podcast talking about guys staying in better shape. I would imagine I would give most players the benefit of the doubt of, you know, just make sure you're ready and there's going to be some disappointments. That was the big joke 20 years ago is when a lot of these guys came back from the lockout, they were never the same. Like, Sean Kemp physically was never the same person True. after the lockout. And it's like, well, you just you just didn't care. But it's that's a great point, though. Uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way, the too much too soon thing. I know you've written about it, but it's just... It's just a good reminder of you have these classes that are all supposed to replace each other, but then you have this group of incredibly talented guys, players we kind of liked. And you're like, what What the hell's going on here? And then you add in this class. And I also noticed, too, when you go back and read some of the stuff, um, how many GMs that were running some of this stuff. And no one should really be blamed for anything after this kind of class that we just went through. But a lot of these guys never got jobs again. I mean, Billy Knight got the, the Atlanta job when everyone in the world knew he was taking Sheldon Williams, Duke five, and you're like, what could you possibly like that shook me for a month. I go back and watch more and more Sheldon Williams. And I'm like, how could anyone take this guy fifth? Like, there's no way this is real. And he took him fifth. And there's some guys taking picks there that would never be given the job to run a franchise the way they had 20 years ago. Well, uh, just give me one movie recommendation before we go. Oh, bombshell liked it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The, dude, seriously, Charlize Theron playing Megan Kelly, creepy good, how good that is. And, you know, Margot Robbie's, you know, I'm not going to change the channel. I didn't like it as much as you did. I like behind the scenes. You always were away. You always got out of the office. So anything that has to do with, like, television being on the deal, and I was, I was in it every day, yeah. roaming the hallways. You know, you were above that, so you didn't have to deal with it as above much. That. I really liked a movie I called uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is not the most uplifting movie, but I thought it was uh, exceptionally well done and kind of an important movie. So I'd recommend that one. Okay. Um, and then Ozark season one. Huge fan. I have a Going Backwards movie for you. Okay. Just quickly. I watched Election with my daughter today. I, f I fast forwarded. I knew there was a couple of like sex things that I had the remote ready just like to pause and then get through it. But uh, how old is she? She's 14. She can handle it. Oh, but yeah, I, yeah. I still, I don't want to be in the same yeah. room with her when stuff's happening. But uh, that movie's a really fun rewatch. No, there's certain scenes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple, but is I, I was on it. It was never an issue. Um, early Alexander Payne. Matthew Broderick had that fun drama run there from, you know, late 90s. He's in You Can Count On Me a year later. Early, early Reese. Chris Klein just being a doofus before we realized that was like his only move. It was like, oh, look at this actor. And then it's like, oh, he's not acting. This is just what he's like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really fun, quirky movie. I hadn't seen in a while. We even did, I think, a Rewatchables 99 on it. I wasn't on that one. Um, but uh, I, I just... I like the Alexander Payne movies. I've watched that. I watched the descendants and I watched sideways during the quarantine. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not breaking ground by saying that guy's really good, but it was just fun to watch all three of those 
in 10 days and see the progression. Um, I love Sideways. Sideways is like one of my favorite movies of the last 15 years. So there you go. I saw I saw Election in the theater, loved it immediately. People thought I was a weirdo because I was really on it. And I'd be like, you got to see this movie Election. You got to see this movie Election. And I feel like a couple of girls, I mean, you know, I don't know 23, 24, they're like, that movie was kind of weird. I'm like, do you not see how, like, that's, how simple it is and perfectly executed the whole deal is? It's great. Like when the kid who's in the wheelchair gives the speech running for president. Vice president, yeah. Yeah, and and it's perfectly like the way he says it. And I'm like, that's high school. That's being in high school and the whole deal. And then- There's good touches. Yeah, one of the other person, like somebody else is giving a speech and like some pimple-faced red-headed kid's like, eat me raw! Screams it in the background. (laughs) And then the guy playing the principal's perfect. He's like, all right, you know, uh, we're not going to do that here. And the principle's perfect, the whole thing. I love Election. And Sideways is funny because I did not like it when I first saw it. I was too young. I was too young to understand how uh, heavy that movie is. It's, it's, I could watch Sideways. Sideways is up there with, with very few movies where I could watch. Because I just started up Shawshank. I just was going through it, wanted to see some scenes. Question for you, tweeted about it. If Red and the crew, his lunch crew there, were close enough to Andy Dufresne to get him on roof tarring duty outside, a couple bottles of suds. Yeah. Where was that crew when the sisters were beating the hell out of him and we know what else was going on? So like, oh, I'm good for tarring, but you guys can't help me out with these dudes? Well, Red says that I do believe those were the worst two years for Andy, which is being repeatedly raped by the sisters, which I think I would hope that were the worst two years. But uh, yeah, I, would, I, would I think the think. tarring happened after. I think the sisters had gotten kind of tired of Andy at that point. But um, I think the friendships with those other guys kind of deepened a little bit later. But, yeah, but they, some- still rigged this, the, they still rigged it so that he got picked. So, and there's a scene that goes right from that to right to that. All right, so basically what I found is a problem with one of the greatest movies of our lifetime. So I'm just going to Oh, there's a up. lot of problems. Uh, I don't want to say that because it's too good of a movie. No, it's one of my, obviously one of my five favorite movies ever. But you could really, if you're going to really start nitpicking, you could do it with yeah. that movie. Yeah. I still don't yeah. know how well, he knew which way to turn in the sewage pipe. So if he goes left. Because I think the grade. Yeah, I, I, th- I don't think you've worked construction enough. I think of Andy... I, I think you could just, you people can, I could tell if something's level just by looking at it, just years on the site. So okay. I think what he's doing is he's going, I need a certain grade because this is a pipe that's dispensing outwards. He probably just felt the level. I think I would have screwed that up and gone left and then be like, oh, fuck, where is this? Where's this exit? Throw up again. Uh, Rosillo, stay safe. We'll see you in a week. And, uh, and, I don't know what I don't know what the next redraftables with us is going to be, but it, but it, we might end up having to do O three at some point. Maybe, maybe not next week, but at some point. All right, I'll uh, we can listen to your podcast as well, which you'll be doing at least one of this week. NFL draft is coming; it'll be the last like real sports we're probably going to have here for a while. But anyway, uh, good seeing you. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks, man. All right, thanks to World Central Kitchen. Don't forget to go to WCK.org. And if you have the means, give what you can, help out, check out what they're doing. Maybe you will uh, get into it and want to give something. 
thanks to What We Do in the Shadows, the dramatic return of the FX original comedy. The Hollywood Reporter called the series' first season ridiculously funny and warned that you will die laughing. This season, Shadows continues to follow our four favorite vampires who have been living together for hundreds of years. Premieres on Wednesday, April 15th on FX, streaming next day, FX on Hulu. And if you missed season one, catch up now on What We Do in the Shadows on FX on Hulu. Stay safe out there. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the scientists. We'll have more later in the week. One more redraft on the Book of Basketball's pod. We're doing 2001, me and Zach Lowe. And then two rewatchables. Total Recall coming Monday night and then Enemy of the State later in the week. Stay safe out there. Listen to the experts. See you soon.